Hello, everyone, and welcome to the June 2022 edition of Right on Prime. I'm Heidi James, and I'm here with Vanessa Carty. How are you, Vanessa? I'm doing all right. Thank you, Heidi. It's great to chat with you again. Well, I'm glad we're chatting because, as per usual, I have a case I wanted to review with you. This is the case concerning an elderly gentleman, an 83-year-old man to be precise, who has multiple medical conditions, which include hypertension, ischemic heart disease, grave disease, and atrial fibrillation. But he made an appointment specifically to see me because he had noticed a decreased sense of smell. Not like a complete lack of smell like you see with anosmia, but a significant decrease. So more like a hyposmia or hyposmia. The sense of smell, as we all know, does deteriorate a little bit as we age, but this seemed like something quite different. Okay, so this is great. A little ear, nose, and throat review. I like it. I'm actually surprised at how frequently we see this in our practices. So what was going on with your patient in this case? Well, as part of the workup, of course, I started with the gold standard, the history. And he told me that it had started two months previously. It wasn't a sudden onset, but it didn't like come on over a very long length of time either. It actually went over a couple of weeks. He went from being able to smell everything like his food, his cleaning supplies, smelling the roses, to scent almost totally being absent, like incredibly muted. And of course, this affected his sense of taste because so much of taste is wrapped up with smell. And as a result of this, he'd started eating less because food wasn't as enjoyable and he'd lost quite a bit of weight. Poor fellow. So how did you confirm this? Or did you just go by his word? I just went by his word because, you know, I tried to trust my patient. But as I was uh, reading around this topic, I discovered that we should confirm it. And there are actually commercially available products that we can use to do so. And one of them is called Sniffin' Sticks. You are making this up. I am not making this up. Doesn't that just sound like something like kids would buy, you know? <laughs> yeah, this doesn't sound like something that you should be telling your patients to buy or to use on your patients. Right? So then as I was reading this, I'm like, oh, I don't have sniffing sticks, but should I, you know, have done a sniff test of common sense, like coffee or cinnamon or bleach? But I just took him at his word. Was there any history of head trauma or anything like a stroke? We certainly worry about that in complete anosmia, and I guess it would be reasonable to rule that out here as well. Yeah, yeah, you're right to ask about that because those are very common causes. His history and physical exam weren't consistent with those, nor did he have a, like a chronic rhinosinusitis picture or allergic rhinitis or anything that would make me think he had obstructing polyps. Certainly, I didn't see any on exam. Thinking about other causes, he didn't have a history of radiation to the area, no toxic exposures, no history of seizures or migraines. He wasn't a smoker. He didn't do cocaine. He didn't have dementia. Basically, I couldn't find anything that might be associated with this decreased sense of smell. Okay, so let's say it was a picture that was consistent with chronic inflammation up in there, up in his nose. So what would you have done? I would have treated him with inhaled nasal steroids and likely used saline sinus rinses as well. And if that didn't help, I would have sent him to ENT for sonoscopy. And are there any investigations you would order or that you did actually order for this gentleman? Yeah, yeah, I did actually order some investigation for this gentleman because the cause wasn't obvious. As I said, he had multiple medical conditions, so at high risk for CVAs and that sort of thing. So I ordered a CT just to get a sense of the anatomy. You know, were there any posterior polyps or masses that couldn't be seen on an exam? CT head was fine. I could have done an MRI because that is actually the gold standard for anosmia, but that's a little bit more difficult to access here, so I didn't do that. I did some blood work, 
to rule out uh, multiple endocrine conditions that we needed to consider, like Cushing's disease, hypothyroid, and diabetes, and also nutritional deficiencies. And here we think about zinc and copper, vitamin A, vitamin B12, and vitamin B6. And I rounded out the metabolic profile for good measure in case he had renal or hepatic issues that could be contributing. So basically, Vanessa, I did far more of a workup than I thought I would do originally, just because the differential and the list of potential causes is quite large. Just to let you know, all of the results were normal. There was no change from his baseline on any of the parameters, and all the imaging was normal as well. So I was really no further ahead. I guess one little sidebar here is I can't believe I actually forgot to mention this. I forgot to ask this question in the time of COVID, but did this gentleman have a viral infection? Did he have a heavy cold or any of the other viruses that we know can affect the sense of smell? You know, he did not recall being sick, so unlikely that this is a viral picture. And he was triple vaxxed for COVID, so unlikely an asymptomatic infection either. But we, you know, we tested him just to be sure. And uh, things were okay. We haven't talked about one other possible cause here, and that's medications. And we know that medications can certainly cause hyposmia or anosmia. And you mentioned that this gentleman had a lot of other medical conditions. So was there any chance that medications could be at play here? Winner, winner, chicken dinner. (laughs) You're right, Vanessa. This is where the money is. Medications can change a person's sense of smell. Most of them cause a dysgeusia, but some can cause anosmia or hyposmia as well. And that was actually the case for this gentleman. He is on statin therapy with his history of ischemic heart disease, and he was switched from his regular simvastatin to atorvastatin by his cardiologist. And hyposmia is an incredibly rare side effect of this medication. I had no idea, and I regret to say have never warned a patient that this could happen to them if they were taking atorvastatin. That's certainly something that I will remember. But are there any other medications to consider? It looks like some of the calcium channel blockers, many of the statins actually, and some antibiotics can impact a sense of smell. So something to think about when you see patients whose hyposmia isn't easily explained. That's very interesting. Now, a question, of course, coming back to the patient, did his sense of smell return? Remarkably, it did. And that's always our concern with changes in one of the critical senses is that the change will be permanent. But It certainly did return to his baseline. I mean, his sense of smell hasn't been the same as it was like back in his 20s for a long time. But importantly, food became enjoyable for him again. So he put some of the weight back on that he'd lost and he was happier because so much of life is uh, enjoying it and interacting with it through our senses. I'm so thankful that stopping that medication made a difference for him. That must have been such a relief. And I think it's a really great story to share, and particularly a side effect of a statin that I had never heard of. I don't think this is a side effect that we need to tell all of our patients about when we're starting them on a statin, but it's something to consider. It's certainly not a common one, but uh, one that some of our patients would care about. It's been my pleasure telling you about this lovely gentleman, but I think it's time for us to talk about what's coming up on the rest of the show. We have a fantastic show lined up this month, and part of the reason that it is extra fantastic this month is because we are actually introducing a little new area of content. We are introducing some urgent care content. Longtime MRAP listeners are going to hear some familiar voices here. This month, we're being joined by Mel. Yes, Mel Herbert, the one and only founder of MRAP. Wow! (laughs) And he and Gita Pensa are going to be chatting about Bell's palsy, or is it Bell palsy? 
You're going to have to tune in to listen to find out. Let's not forget our other usual content. Hobart Lee talking about vitamin D, which sounds like that could potentially lead to a wrap if one was so inclined. There's also PCMA with Steve and Ken. We have Adrian and Jake joining us on The Generalist to talk about rapid atrial fibrillation and heart failure. And on Office Medicine, Dusty Narducci joins you to chat about the male athlete triad. And rounding it out, there's Rural Medicine talking about a palliative case in the emergency department. So with that behind us, let's jump on in to Right on Prime, June 2022. Coming to you from semi-scenic Loma Linda, California, it's Reviews and Perspectives with Dr. Hobart Lee. Okay, Heidi, how are you doing? I am doing swell, Hobie. Very swell. It's good to see you. Good to be here to talk. Yeah, I'm happy to see you too. So I have an interesting story to tell you from when I interviewed for residency. Oh my gosh, I love your stories, and I bet this one is going to be the cream of the crop. I don't know about that, but I was interviewing for residencies, and I went to one program, and uh, surprisingly, they had us take a test of sorts, Oh, I guess to kind of assess for baseline medical knowledge, that kind of thing. So one of the questions they asked was, what's the difference between primary prevention and secondary prevention? Looking from where I sit now, that's a very easy question because primary prevention prevents the disease before it occurs, you know, kind of like immunizations would prevent something. Yeah, perfect. And then what about secondary prevention? Well, secondary prevention is about reducing the impact of a disease that's already there, you know, like preventing that second heart attack after you've had a first one. Perfect. So, of course, you got that question right, obviously, because every fourth year med student knows that. Yeah, right. Well, uh, I was a nervous young lad, and so I actually switched the definitions of primary and secondary prevention. And uh, so subsequently, yes, I got a very disapproving look from the program director, who I think was expecting more from a fourth-year medical student interested in family medicine. Uh, But the good conclusion to this story is, don't worry, disapproving program director from a long time ago. I now, as a program director have the opportunity to ask tricky questions and give disapproving looks to students interviewing at my own program. So it all comes full circle. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. (laughs) How how does this tie into our discussion? I'm sure it does, but I don't see how just yet. (laughs) Well, yes. So I wanted to talk to you today about vitamin D screening. So that's a big and controversial topic. You sure we've got the bandwidth to actually cover that one and do it justice? Yes. Well, I'm not sure, but I do get asked about this a lot. I get asked from patients who want to be screened, from patients who are following up from some other doctor that screened them and they got an abnormal result, or even from residents who say they want to screen their patients, et cetera. Yeah, this is a good one because at the heart of screening is we should be looking for things that if we change it, we can prevent an outcome. So like in this case, it's totally worthwhile to screen for low vitamin D levels if fixing those low levels would prevent a disease from developing or have an impact on the worsening of the disease that already exists. And I know my colleagues, the public, and lots of people have lots of opinions about screening for vitamin D and vitamin D supplementation. So this is controversial, and I love a controversy. Let's jump into it. Okay, well, first things first, let's make sure we're all talking about the same thing. Vitamin D deficiency, or its fancy pseudonym, hypovitaminosis D, is determined by measuring serum total hydroxyvitamin D, or 25-OHD levels. 
Okay, so I have a question for you, Heidi. What is the lab cutoff which determines deficiency? Oh, I am not a fourth-year medical student interviewing to be in your program, so I know <laughs> this is a trick question, Hobie. I know, because there is no expert consensus or agreement on what constitutes deficiency. Some groups talk about insufficiency versus deficiency to provide gradations on how low their patient's vitamin D level is, and that's actually how our lab reports things. So you can't, but in reality, you can't often look at the lab report for a cutoff and use that to determine if there's a problem. Yes, to me, this is totally crazy. Yeah. And we cannot, as a physician group and as a medical society, sort of agree on a number. So because we can't agree, we're just going to subdivide it into further divisions <laughs> to obfuscate the idea. We just don't know really what's happening here or what number is good and what number is bad. Yeah, absolutely. So what does the literature say about it? Does it say that screening for vitamin D improves any health outcomes? I mean, I hope it does. The amount of vitamin D screening I see going on, it better make a heck of a lot of difference. Okay, well, you may be a little bit disappointed here. Kawadi et al. looked at this as part of updating the U.S. PSDF recommendations on screening for vitamin D deficiency in adults. And they found, wait for it, zero relevant studies regarding screening. Zero. Zero? As in like no, no studies have been done? No studies. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That is surprising to me. Now, is this for the general population or does it incorporate studies looking at like different high-risk populations? I'm thinking of, you know, like nursing home patients or those who may be obese or older or those of African-American heritage. Yeah. So the U.S. PSTF looked at that too, and they found zero studies about screening for vitamin D in high-risk subpopulations. Again, zero. Zero. No studies. Nope. There's nothing. How can there be no studies and yet we are screening so many people on a regular basis for vitamin D levels? Like, how can that be the case? I don't, I don't know. That's why I want to talk about this topic. Because <laughs> you look at the evidence, which is some of the stuff that we like to do here. And I would argue, I think the USPSTF does a great job trying to do a relevant background literature search and trying to answer these questions. They found zero studies regarding screening. No studies on screening, so we can't really comment if we should or should not be doing it. That's right. But what about the harms? If there's no sign of benefit, is there anything that tells us whether it's a bad thing to do? Yeah. So interestingly enough, there are no studies on harms too. So screening, again, talking about screening, there were zero studies they found on harms of screening. So essentially, we don't know. We have zero studies looking at either the benefit or the harm of vitamin D screening. Oh my gosh. What a gong show. What a gong show. <laughs> Well, because everybody and their dog is being screened for vitamin D levels based on zero evidence, is there any evidence to support doing something about those vitamin D levels if they're low, if they're insufficient or deficient? Yes, sort of. So <laughs> let's, uh, qualified yes, uh, let's do some rapid fire yes or no questions here. Is there evidence to support treating vitamin D deficiency for mortality? I know how this interview is going so far, and the answer for every question seems to be no. So I'm going with no. Yes, that's correct. No. How about fractures? No. Correct. How about falls? No. <laughs> that's a trick question there. So there is a small decrease, maybe 0.1 fewer falls per person year in community-dwelling older adults. So, But I will tell you, it's hard to know given the type of measurement that was used in a lot of these studies. Was it new falls versus total falls? So either way, 
maybe you can make an argument for a very small decrease in falls in community-dwelling older adults. I'm no statistician, but I don't think that finding merits a strong recommendation for giving vitamin D, for treating vitamin D insufficiency. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's hard to call that a strong recommendation. But moving on, so what about the incidence of diabetes or cardiovascular disease or cancer or depression? I'm going to say no. It's the theme of the day. Yeah, all no's, right? So all were not statistically significant. So now for the caveats. When you look at institutionalized patients or nursing home patients or homebound patients, there may be a small reduction in mortality, but it was really hard to say given the heterogeneity of the individual studies. When they looked at other subgroups like men versus women or patients who started with a very low vitamin D level, like less than 20 nanograms per milliliter, or even concomitant use of calcium, or subgroups like African-American patients, they were all too limited to draw any general conclusions. I see there's a lot of different doses that are recommended and used for vitamin D, even if they're not recommended by anybody. And this is a bit concerning. I know some people like doing daily dosing of a range between 400 and 4,000 international units. Right. Some recommend weekly doses between 20,000 and 50,000 international units. And some like a one-time dosing. Oh, wow, I've never heard of this, of giving like a lump sum of 100,000 international units. And then it brings up other questions, like, do you throw in some calcium with that vitamin D if you're worried about bone health, or do you not do that? All of these things make it really hard to generalize these studies into a single unified conclusion. It's just messy. Yeah, agreed. And so I think that's part of the struggle of trying to make a recommendation around this topic is there is so much heterogeneity around treatment of vitamin D. And I will mention, while adverse events were not statistically different, Patients did report some GI issues, fatigue, musculoskeletal complaints, lightheadedness, headache, rashes, itching. All were some of the reported side effects from vitamin D treatment. Yeah. Give you 100,000 units of a fat-soluble vitamin and watch bad things happen. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's crazy. I'd never heard of that too, but it was quoted as one of the studies they included in this review because there was a trial that looked at that. Wow. The question is, if the dosing is all squirrely, like, why do we believe the effects should be unified, right? And so, like, I know there are these trials, end of one, you know, patient says, oh, I'm depressed, I take vitamin D, I feel better. I fatigue, I take vitamin D, I feel better. What, whatever the situation might be. I'm not discounting those experiences, but then to generalize that for the whole population and say, well, if you're fatigued, you need vitamin D, or if you're depressed, you need vitamin D, or if you don't want diabetes, you need vitamin D. How could you say that when the dosing is, like, so crazy? I mean, I just don't know how you can say that. Yeah, you can't. You can't. You need good head-to-head studies comparing the different doses and having actual tangible endpoints. Wow. Yeah. What about vitamin D in osteoporosis? So the key here is they found no difference in fracture risk, right, in fractures. And so and you know, maybe we can save this for another discussion, but I'm not sure osteoporosis is what patients worry about. No one comes to me and says, you know what? My T-score is really low. You know, like I need a new DEXA scan. (laughs) My T-score, I'm feeling like my bone density is decreasing, right? What they don't want is they don't want a fracture, particularly a hip fracture, which we know can be so deleterious, right? And when they looked at fractures in this review, they found that vitamin D really made no difference in terms of the risk of fractures. So I would say the answer is no, not really. And the focus on osteoporosis And T-scores, I think, is like, it's a surrogate marker. It has some benefit, but it's not ultimately the most important thing. And so I tend not to worry about those things because what does it matter? Your T-scores could be terrible, but if you never have a fall or a fracture, most patients don't care. Right. It's not a patient-oriented outcome. 
It is not. It is a test-oriented outcome. Yeah. Oh, huh. Okay. Recap. So, Hobie, I feel like I should rent a Skywriter and fly <laughs> it all over everybody's community and say, don't screen for vitamin D levels. Yeah. Is that a fair wrap-up, or would you be able to say it in a perhaps more eloquent manner? <laughs> well... What I would say is it's surprising, but the USPSTF did not find any trials on the benefit or harms of screening. As you mentioned, we do a ton of this. It's almost ubiquitous in our healthcare systems, yet there is no trials really looking at the benefit or risk of screening. And I would say there is very limited or no benefit in the treatment of vitamin D deficiency. So, you know, in summary, I'd say it's really hard to justify screening patients for vitamin D deficiency. And I would say it's very hard to justify treatment when there is such limited data talking about improvement. And so, to my ultimate dad joke, it's uh, vitamin denied. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. It's the best I could do. I tried so hard. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Is it? We love our dad joke. Okay. Very nice. man in cardiac arrest and our building just lost power all right give me jumper cables rubber gloves 3,000 grams of soul medrol stack what are you macgyver no i'm the generalist greetings all vanessa cardi here and today i have the pleasure of introducing adrian salim and jake anderson as they discuss a case for the generalist. This is kind of the generalist in the hospital when we do those ward rounds when we take care of patients on the medicine unit So let's join Jake and Adrian as they talk about atrial fibrillation and heart failure. So, Jake, I got a case for you. All right, that's great to hear. I'm excited to walk through this one with you. This is a great case that hits on a lot of really important things. So you are the hospitalist on, say it's after hours and you're covering the medical floor. And you get a call from one of the nurses on the floor and they tell you about a patient. So this is a 65-year-old female. She was just admitted that morning because of a HF exacerbation. She's known for non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. She was uh, actually admitted a few years ago for the same sort of thing and found to have a very poor ejection fraction at that time. So it was less than 20% and it was thought to be related to alcohol. So she had an alcohol cardiomyopathy. Thankfully, though, her last echo was just a few months ago and her EF at that time had improved. It was around 45% now. She's also known for AFib. She's on a Pixaban for it. And uh, she's also on a low dose of bisoprolol at home. So the story is she was admitted this morning. She has uh, an acute HF exacerbation. She was given some IV furosemide in the ED, uh, and she was pretty stable when she came up to the floor. She was only on one liter of oxygen. She was you know, working a bit hard to breathe, but it wasn't terrible. But now you're getting a call from the nurse, and the nurse is telling you that her heart rate is going pretty fast. It's like 140 to 150. She's requiring a bit more oxygen now. She's on four liters of oxygen via nasal prongs. She's breathing around 26 or so. He says that she doesn't look terrible. She doesn't look like she's peri-arrest or anything, but she, she doesn't look great either. So his main question is, what should he do about the heart rate? So he asks, you know, should we just cardiovert her? Should we give her some IV metoprolol? So what do you think so far, Jake? What's your plan of attack here? Yeah, this is super challenging. And, you know, unfortunately, this is not an uncommon scenario. So on, on one hand, you, you want to slow down the patient's heart rate because maybe that's causing her to decompensate from a heart failure standpoint. But on the other hand, maybe the tachycardia is actually compensatory, right? Like she's speeding up her heart rate to maintain stroke volume because of a poor ejection fraction. So if you slow it down, that might take away that compensation. 
Right, exactly. So really good points. You know, we're going to get into the nitty gritty of that in just a second. But in this particular case, what ended up happening was she got IV metoprolol. So it seems like a reasonable approach. But unfortunately, after getting it, she decompensated pretty quickly. And so the problem was, unbeknownst to the doctor who was on, she was actually in compensated cardiogenic shock. And it turns out her EF was actually less than 10% when they got a formal echo the next day. So that beta blocker she got just kind of tipped her over the edge and she decompensated. Yeah. Yeah, these are really tricky situations. So after that, what ended up happening? So thankfully, she did okay in the end. She did have to go to the ICU. She did require inotropes for a few days. But she turned the quarter pretty quick, and she was actually discharged home after about a week or so. But it could have ended much worse. And I think the error that we make is to focus on the heart rate in these patients. It just feels so wrong to see someone, you know, chugging along on the monitor going 140, 150 beats per minute. And we want to do something about it, right? But that can lead to some pretty terrible outcomes. So what we're going to be focusing on here is how to manage acute AFib in acute HF patients. Because they are two separate pathologies, but they are definitely interwoven together. Okay, so let's start off with the fact that acute onset of AFib can precipitate acute decompensated HF. And that's because the tachycardia can cause loss of cardiac output from reduced diastolic filling time, and then also because of a loss of atrial kick. Explain that loss of atrial kick. This is especially relevant for patients who have HF with preserved ejection fraction. So they have diastolic dysfunction. They have a stiff ventricle, right? And so they have a hard time filling their ventricle in diastole. So they rely on that atrial beat, that atrial systole, to kind of fill up, to top up their ventricle with blood. So what happens is when someone goes into acute AFib, they lose that atrial systole. So all of a sudden they get a decrease in their cardiac output and it can lead to decompensated heart failure. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, totally makes sense. Okay. So we're talking about how AFib can cause HF, but the opposite is also true. HF can cause AFib. Now, when patients have HF, it can cause atrial stretching, and then that puts patients who have HF at higher risk of developing AFib. And then just to complicate things even further, AFib with rapid ventricular response, it may actually be compensatory, and I I think you touched upon that earlier. So the challenge here is to really try and figure out just what is going on, because it's just so tangled together. Yeah, super challenging. Chicken or the egg. Let me try and and summarize this. I'll, I'll take a stab. So first off, acute atrial fibrillation can be a trigger for acute decompensation of heart failure. And conversely, HF is a risk factor for developing atrial fibrillation. And then finally, if we see somebody with HF and AFib, the fast ventricular rate that we're seeing may actually not be a cause of their HF, but rather compensating. So yeah, chicken or the egg. Yeah, exactly, Jake. I think you got it. I'm just going to jump in here because Adrian and Jake are going to start talking about the management of heart failure in the context of atrial fibrillation now. And you might be wondering, but what about tests that we might need to do? What about trying to figure out the actual trigger of their heart failure? And those are certainly valid questions. But if someone is acutely unwell, those are going to be things that you need to do simultaneously rather than before treating them. Of course, ask for labs that might reveal a cause of the acute episode. Look for anemia, for renal failure, and for metabolic disturbances. You can consider infection and sepsis or other physiologic stresses. If you have any idea of the underlying cause already, then of course tailor your treatment accordingly, but otherwise you're going to be doing some empiric treatment, trying to stabilize that patient before you get back any results of labs or imaging. So, that caveat aside, let's rejoin Adrian and Jake. All right, so let's talk about management. You're seeing somebody like that patient you described with acute decompensated heart failure, 
and they're in fast atrial fibrillation. How do we manage these patients safely because it feels like we're walking a really tight balance here? This is a challenging and sometimes it feels like we're stuck between a rock and a hard place with really no great answer. Another complicating factor here is that there is a lack of evidence to guide us. Now you would think for something so common, there should be lots of trials and review articles and all that sort of stuff. But when I started looking into this, I was really underwhelmed to say the least by the amount of literature out there. There's really not a whole lot out there. There's that inverse relationship between how common something is and to how much it's been researched. Yeah, I find that true. So a big disclaimer here is that this is based mostly on expert opinion, and management patterns can vary widely from physician to physician, from area to area, and hospital to hospital. So I would have a really low threshold to discuss this with your local cardiologist or intensivist, because these patients are tricky to manage and they can deteriorate quickly, and everyone's practice pattern is a little bit different. So Jake, let me ask you, you're called to see that patient like we talked about earlier, and they're, you know, in acute pulmonary edema, they're in AFib with a rapid ventricular response, and their rate's between, you know, 130 to 150. So what's your first step? Well, honestly, I think my first step would be, just like you mentioned before, I'm calling for help. Maybe cardiology, maybe even ICU, depending on how sick the patient was. Yeah, I think that's a perfect first step. You know, their management takes a lot of finesse. And some of the interventions that we need to do can only be done in a higher level setting like BiPAP. So they sometimes need to go to the ICU. So again, I'd have a very low threshold to call for help. Got it. First step, reach out for some help. So step two is treating this HF like you usually would. Okay, so try to ignore the heart rate just for a few minutes and get the patient on non-invasive positive pressure ventilation if you think that they need it. You know, get them on a nitro infusion if they're hypertensive. You know, maybe get some diuretics into them if they're volume overloaded. So we're going to do the usual stuff that we're all used to with acute HF exacerbations. All right, so we've done all that, but the patient's still tacky. Say their heart rate's in the 130 to 150s. What are we going to do now? Because maybe that atrial fibrillation and their tachycardia is contributing to the HF, right? Yeah, okay, so now we're on step three, which is managing the heart rate. So we can tolerate a somewhat higher heart rate than we're used to. And so we should be aiming for a heart rate under 120, okay? So we can accept a little bit higher heart rate than we're used to. Now, the major branch point here is if the patient has HF with preserved ejection fraction, or do they have HF with reduced ejection fraction, okay? Now, it's nice if they have a recent echo in their chart, but sometimes that information just might not be immediately available. So if you don't know, the easiest way to do this is to just have a look with a bedside ultrasound. Now, look, I work in an ED, and you know, I'm fairly comfortable with ultrasound, and most of my colleagues in the ED are. And, like, look, I can't tell you exactly the patient's EF to, like, the nearest decimal point, but I can certainly tell you if it looks, you know, normal-ish, if it's really bad, or if it's somewhere in the middle. You know, so I'm pretty good at ballparking it. Point-of-care ultrasound in a case like this is definitely emerging on the wards, although the ED crew has been way ahead of the game. We're starting to see this a lot more. A lot more hospitalists become uncomfortable with this way to evaluate the patient. I mean, it, it kind of sounds scary, you know, having a look with the bedside ultrasound, sometimes the you know, cardiac views sounds a bit intimidating, but it's really not that hard. So I definitely uh, recommend anyone who's not that comfortable with it, you know, going out and taking a course. It's really easy to pick up and it could really give you a lot of information. Patients with diastolic dysfunction. So say your patient has a normal EF, okay? So they have diastolic dysfunction. Uh, so they have HF with preserved ejection fraction. Well, in this case, you can use a calcium channel blocker or you can use a beta blocker IV if their blood pressure can tolerate it, okay? So reasonable options here are diltiazem. You can use a dose of 0.25 milligrams per kilogram 
You could also give smaller doses if their blood pressure is a bit on the softer side. So you can do something like 10 to 15 milligram IV boluses as well. Metoprolol 2.5 milligrams to 5 milligrams IV is another option. And you can give some repeat doses in five minutes as well if the heart rate is not being adequately controlled. Now, if the patient is already on a beta blocker or calcium channel blocker at home, it's probably best to stay with the class that they're already on. And then once their heart rate is controlled, you can give them a PO dose, you know, once their heart rate is back kind of where you want it to be. Yeah, I love that idea, uh, starting with small doses and incrementally increasing them and redosing until you get that response you're looking for. Patients with systolic dysfunction. So now if the patient has a poor ejection fraction, you know, they have systolic dysfunction or HF with reduced ejection fraction. So in this case, it's probably best to avoid beta blockers or calcium channel blockers because of their negative ionotropic effects. Okay, and that's what happened to that patient that we talked about earlier, is that you're taking someone who has already has reduced ejection fraction, and then you're putting a negative ionotrope on top of that. You're also slowing down their heart rate, which could be compensating. And then basically the results can be disastrous. So if we're taking beta blockers and calcium channel blockers off the table, what are we going to use in this case? You're not talking digoxin, are you? Yeah, I'm going old school here. I think digoxin is definitely an option here. And amiodarone is another option as well. So both of these can rate control, but they don't have that negative ionotropic effects that, you know, beta blockers do and calcium channel blockers do. Now, I don't use digoxin very often. I think I probably use it like once or twice a year, to be honest. So I always have to look up the dose when I have to use it. Uh, And the dose is 0.25 to 0.5 milligram IV load. Okay, so you want to be careful for patients who have renal disease because it is renal cleared. And then another problem with DIG is that it acts on the vagal system, not so much the sympathetic system, right? So if the patient has high sympathetic drive, like they're amped up, they're dyspneic, you know, their sympathetic system is turned on to the max, well, digoxin's probably not going to work all that well in that case. What about amiodarone? Tell me more about that. I normally think of it as a rhythm control agent, but it actually does rate control as well. And again, it doesn't have the negative inotropic effects that beta blockers or calcium channel blockers do. Now, it can cause some hypotension, so you got to be wary of that. And the dose is 150 milligrams IV over 10 minutes, and then you can give an infusion after that as well. Cardioversion. So we've hit on a couple meds. What about cardioversion? Should we be cardioverting these patients? Wouldn't that kind of fix both issues right away? The answer is it's complicated. If you look at any guidelines, and that's including ACLS, you're looking at European guidelines, Canadian guidelines, They all say that for patients who have AFib and they're unstable, they need immediate cardioversion. And they define unstable as either being hypotensive, having pulmonary edema, or ischemic chest pain. So what they're basically saying is that these patients who are in AFib and they're in acute decompensated HF, well, they need to be cardioverted ASAP. But there's a few problems with that. And this is why I don't think cardioverting everyone is in our patient's best interest. Okay, so first off, patients who have a rapid ventricular response Again, they may be compensatory, right? They may be compensating for their reduced ejection fraction. And if we cardiovert them into sinus, especially if they've had a beta blocker on board or a calcium channel blocker on board already, we're going to slow them down and then take away that compensation. And we're just going to make things worse. Secondly, um, we're taking a potentially unstable patient and then we're going to be giving them sedation to help with the cardioversion. And so that's a really high risk situation. We've actually had a morbidity mortality case about this in the department I work at where we had a bad outcome because of that. And then also in my experience, this is, you know, my personal experience, but I don't think I'm alone here. But whenever we cardiovert an unstable patient who's in AFib, it doesn't really work that often. It might work initially for a few minutes or for a few seconds, but all these patients just end up going right back into AFib. Are there situations, though, when, when you might consider cardioversion? 
Yeah, look, I think if the patient's heart rate is really fast, and we're talking about, you know, 180 to 200, something like that, you know, they're going really fast, they're hypotensive as well, and not just like a soft blood pressure, but they're really hypotensive. Like, I think those are valid scenarios where you would go to cardioversion. But these are sick patients, these are high-risk patients, I would definitely be on the phone with ICU. Yeah, it makes sense. And we should throw out there that these patients should be anticoagulated. Yeah, good point. And, and that's another concern for cardioversion is that, you know, there's a stroke risk involved with cardioverting these patients, especially if their AFib has been going on for some time and they're not anticoagulated, or you don't know how long they've been in AFib for and they're not anticoagulated. Obviously, if you have to do it, you have to do it. But good point about the, the anticoagulation. Stepwise approach to management. So let's get back to the patient you presented at the beginning and run through how we could manage them in a stepwise approach. First off, I reach out for help. I give a call to our ICU saying that this patient may need some BiPAP and some help with management. Next, we get some IV furosemide in, start the diuresis, and start BiPAP. I know they have a reduced EF from the prior echo, and and say I look with a bedside ultrasound and notice that their ejection fraction is severely reduced, so I'm going to avoid beta blockers and calcium channel blockers, and we'll start with a loading dose of digoxin. The ICU comes down, says great job, patient does great in the ICU, is discharged home a few days later. Awesome, Jake, you did it. You saved them. Amazing. Yeah, so perfect overview. Uh, you want to take a stab at summarizing all of this? Recap. Yeah, I'll try. AFib and HF are separate entities, but they go together frequently. And we know HF can cause AFib, and we know AFib can cause HF, both acutely and chronically. Now, in terms of how to manage AFib in, in patients with acute HF, well, start off by calling for some help, whether that's ICU or cardiology. We're going to treat this HF like you usually would. And then for heart rate management, a good rule of thumb here is to aim for a heart rate of less than 120. If the patient has reduced ejection fraction, then you can use either digoxin or amiodarone. If they have preserved ejection fraction, well, then you can use a calcium channel blocker or a beta blocker. Cardioversion is an option, but probably best to reserve it for the sickest patients. But these are high-risk situations, so have a very low threshold to call for help. That's great. Great case. Really helpful points there on approaching something that, that we see commonly. All right. Thanks, man. Good talking with you. Thank you so much to Jake and Adrian for breaking down some of the complex conundrums we can encounter when caring for patients with heart failure and atrial fibrillation. And thanks to you for listening. Catch you next time on The Generalist. We are back with Dusty Narducci, everybody's favorite sports med doc and eating disorder specialist. So good to see you, Dusty. Hey there, Heidi. It's great to be back. So today we are talking about something that's kind of an emerging understanding in the sports medicine field, and that is the male athlete triad, because we all know about the female athlete triad, but we're here to talk about the guys, about males. Recently, the Clinical Journal of Sports Medicine published a consensus statement, and they called it the male athlete triad, described as a syndrome of three components. So number one being low energy availability, Number two, being impaired bone health. And number three, the suppression of the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal, the HPG axis. And these are the same three components that are in the female athlete triad, correct? That is correct. Okay. Now, I think a couple of these things are intuitive, but the term low energy availability, could you flesh that out a little bit for us, please? I'm not sure everybody would understand it. Low energy availability. 
Low energy availability is essentially a result from insufficient dietary intake, so calories, to meet the needs of an individual's basal metabolic rate and pairing that with their exercise energy expenditure. So how much are we putting in? How much are we getting out? And is that enough to sustain a healthy life, a healthy body? So inadequate energy availability does not allow efficient bodily like homeostasis and sufficient energy turnover to really permit an adequate like adaptation to training, desired performance, and optimal recovery in our athletes. The results of low energy availability often occur along this continuum of severity. And you'll see changes in hormone productions. There will be poor athletic performance, risk and reoccurrence of injury, psychological harm, and impairment of the body's systems just overall. How do we measure energy availability? Like, how do you actually help an athlete figure out if they're getting enough calories in and the right kind of calories? Sounds like a simple thing to do, but it's not. So currently, there is no standard protocol for measurement of energy availability among athletes or really anybody. And what exactly constitutes energy availability varies greatly in our current published data. That's probably, Heidi, because these measurements of energy intake and expenditure are based on self-reported measures. And don't get me started on nutrition databases and things like that because, oof, self-reported anything is always dangerous. (laughs) These and other variables make the estimates needed to create a protocol for energy availability or like a norm of energy availability, depending on somebody's body habitus or exercise expenditure, like nearly impossible. I bet you won't be surprised when I tell you that the exact definition of low energy availability is still to be determined in all athletes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, that sounds like it's not a surprise based on what you told me here. So, but given this, what is your average sports medicine doc or even a family doctor to do about it? Like, do we just guess? So because most of our knowledge is based on really small, 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 small studies (laughs) assessing data-driven outcomes rather than patient-oriented outcomes, which I love patient-oriented outcomes, I really struggle making any type of clinical practice changes based on these conclusions. I don't know if every sports doctor feels that way, but I kind of try to make things a little more individualized. But similar to females, exercising men need around 30 kilocals per kilogram of fat-free mass per day or more to maintain health, but take that number with a grain of salt or for what it's worth. Is this deficiency in energy availability and the triad in general, like, is it very similar to that in females or is it quite different? So similar to female athletes, there's multiple routes that exist for males to develop a triad-like clinical picture. And these include clinical eating disorders, intentional weight loss without, like, disordered eating, unintentional undereating during a time of illness, when that metabolic need is more, or increased exercise. Sometimes there's a lack of education, limited resources, and religious practices that can all inhibit efficient dietary intake. And remember, males are not invincible to clinical eating disorders or body image concerns. I mean, I see male athletes struggling in my practice regularly. The stories I can tell you, Heidi, it's just something that we do not talk about as clinicians, and it's heartbreaking. Mm, That would be terribly heartbreaking, terribly so. Bone health. In what ways does the male athlete triad manifest itself in our patient's bone health? This can get really complicated. Since males do not have a menstrual cycle, it's a lot more difficult to assess reproductive and bone health than it is in females. So we know that amenorrhea in females has a detrimental effect on bone health. But for obvious reasons, we can't use the factor to assess our male athletes. 
We do know that impaired bone health does lead to a higher risk of bone stress injury, regardless of gender. And based on our current literature, even low impact and non-impact sports like cycling can lead to bone stress injury. So it's not just runners who are affected. And there's such a stigma, especially in media, that runners are the only ones that have you know, bone stress injury. And we think that this is because there's more of an association with low body weight and the belief that it improves performance in these leanness-focused athletes like we were talking about, pole vaulting and weightlifting and cycling, things like that. HPG axis. How will physicians know that low calories and high-volume exercise are suppressing our patients' HPG axis? So when that HPG axis is suppressed, this is going to lead to a hypogonadic tropic hypogonadism. And this is going to include a suppression of testosterone and luteinizing hormone. You'll see negative changes in spermatogenesis and decreased libido based on self-reported data. Again, there's a lack of consistency as the cross-sectional studies and very few randomized control trials, if they're looking at a variety of sports, different athlete demographics, a deficiency in calories, others have excessive exercise, and then some have both. So it's just not consistent. It's really hard to pull from that. And when we are looking at testosterone levels, there's a huge issue because we don't have a good baseline for this population. So we see a lot of gray zone reductions and rarely any clinical low results. These sound like alarming changes. Can they be reversed? Absolutely, you can. And that really just takes recognizing this condition and treating it appropriately. Some studies show that impaired reproductive hormones and spermatogenesis return to normal quickly with exercise cessation. And most young athletic males are probably more worried about having a low libido, and we don't have enough of an understanding about the mechanism yet to determine how long this concern will propagate. Diagnosis. I think it's fair to say that a lot of clinicians are not aware of the male athlete triad and are really starting from scratch when they see a patient that may have these conditions. How would you recommend that practitioners screen for the male athlete triad? As clinicians, we need to consider energy deficiency in the differential diagnosis when athletes present with other medical concerns. It shouldn't be the diagnosis of exclusion. I feel like sometimes it's the last thing that's considered when most of the time it actually should be the first thing. And athletes may not present with all three components of the triad at the same time. And assessing symptoms is hard. Although those questionnaires are available to identify symptoms of hypogonadism in males, these are generally limited by poor specificity and were really developed for the use in like older men and have never been validated in athletes. What questions are you asking as you take the history? Like, what are you looking for? So I dive deep. I always ask about an athlete's mental health and then whether or not there's an occurrence of like a known endocrine disorder, such as hypothyroidism or hyperprolactinemia, really to um, kind of look at other factors that might be causing this you know, weight loss or energy impairment. Some medications can cause similar symptoms, such as selective serotonin, reuptake inhibitors, antipsychotics, rapamil, opiates, and substances such as cocaine and marijuana. Others may reduce appetite and cause weight loss and deficiency in calories just because they're not hungry, and those are usually your stimulants for ADHD. And topiramate, sometimes we prescribe that for migraines in athletes or things like that. And those can all lead to an inadequate caloric intake to meet the body's needs. And regarding like psychosocial factors, it's so important to consider cultural perceptions of body weight or size, social pressures from coaches, parents, or teammates, 
And then food scarcity should never be overlooked, nor should access to food. Like all of these factors can really influence eating behavior. When we move to the physical exam, what might we see? So in the physical exam, I always assess for signs of gonadal abnormalities, such as the absence of facial hair, body hair, you know, any changes in the genitals or the breast changes, also signs of an eating disorder. BMI is often recommended, but I really do not love BMI to begin with, but especially I don't think it's optimal method to assess nutritional status in athletes. Okay. Now, what do you order for testing? So when warranted, I do order a DEXA scan. Sometimes I get a pituitary MRI to rule out a pituitary mass if that's something you're worried about. In general, I order a complete blood count, comprehensive metabolic panel, total and free testosterone, thyroid panel, luteinizing hormone, follicle-stimulating hormone, prolactin, iron studies including ferritin, B12 and folate, vitamin D, but more because this is recommended by a lot of our protocols and literature. We already know there's a nutritional deficiency, so I kind of scratch my head sometimes of why we're even looking at this. I mean, I don't think most of these, you know, athletes have rickets, but um, that is <laughs> on hey. the list. Um, okay. Maybe we'll all get over vitamin D eventually. I don't know. <laughs> Not bloody likely. Sometimes erythrocyte sedimentation rate and C-reactive protein, as well as leptin. Leptin's a really cool thing. It definitely looks at like the drive for hunger, um, which is something I can probably talk about in an entire lecture. Also, I got an EKG and a body composition if it's available to really assess that fat-free mass and the total body water content. Hmm, okay. Management. So once you've done your evaluation and workup and you turn your attention to management, what does that look like? So the take-home message is to correct the chronic energy deficiency. This can be done by increasing energy intake or decreasing energy expenditure, so how much they exercise or how much physical activity they're doing. It's not as simple as just increasing daily calories. The proportion of macro and micronutrients really needs to be addressed too. So I try to avoid the desire for athletes to restore their deficiencies through the use of supplements though and pills and multivitamins and this. Yes, those things are needed, but I really try to endorse like real nutrition, taking the time to understand food, prepare food, you know, give your body real food. Now, what does that practically look like when you're talking to an athlete? Like, how do you instruct them to eat and what to eat? So although every athlete will need a different amount of increased energy intake, the literature recommends this like gradual increase of 300 to 500 kilocals per day which can easily be done via like snacks or added to meals. So I often help the athlete to schedule meals and snacks, like literally sit down, let's go over your schedule. You wouldn't believe how much forgetfulness or sometimes even laziness or just being preoccupied with being in college or being traveling or whatever they're doing. So I really sit down and say like, where are we missing time here? Like this has to be a priority. And then also prior to workouts, some athletes avoid food because it can cause some like GI distress or you know, a perceived decrease in their performance. So educating athletes on foods that are more easily digestible, such as simple carbohydrates, and avoiding more of a dense high-protein foods right before exercise can be really helpful. So, you know, a bagel with a little bit of jelly instead of a bagel with, you know, peanut butter on it if it hurts their stomach. And then bedtime snacks, you know, it's a great tool for adults too. You know, teaching athletes how to food prep with snacks that don't require a lot of effort and can be easily transported, like nutrition bars, trail mix, I love my little trick of telling them to keep a peanut butter jar in their backpack with a spoon and just going to town. And um, <laughs> it works, you know. Mm -hmm. 
Now, what about bone health? I know we want to make sure that our athletes are getting the appropriate amount of nutrition, specifically thinking of calcium and, and vitamin D. But what else do we need to consider? You know, we really need to encourage participation, in my opinion, in like weight-bearing activities and athletes who specialize in lower impact and like endurance sports to really optimize that bone mineral density. Do medications have a role here? So our evidence for the use of bisphosphonates in male athletes is based on a few case studies with one poorly designed retrospective study. So teriparatide is a parathyroid hormone analog and parathyroid hormone-related protein analogs are FDA-approved as bone anabolic agents, and they're really thought to improve that trabecular bone mass, microarchitecture, you know, increasing the bone strength and reducing the fracture risk. But these analogs, you know, may be useful in the future. We just don't have a lot of evidence for them just yet. So romuzumab, a monoclonal antibody that has been shown to increase bone density and reduces fracture incidence, should be on our radar as well. But also these treatments are based on studies assessing postmenopausal women and older men. So, you know, take it for what it's worth. How about fixing that HPG axis? Are there medication options? So similar to female athletes, a year of non-pharmacological treatment is recommended. Most pharmacological treatment considered for this condition are banned by professional sports organizations. So those medicines can't be used, you know, to allow them to participate in whatever sport they want in that organization. So treatment has really focused mostly on increasing testosterone. So one would hope that normalizing T levels would improve bone mineral density, sexual function, and quality of life. But since most athletes are in this gray range of low normal T levels, the clinical picture is just so complicated. You know, frankly, we have limited evidence available and many restrictions regarding the use of testosterone. Other therapies to increase T levels have not been very promising and have little or no evidence to back up their use. These include estradiol replacement, clomiphene, tamoxifen, and aromatase inhibitors. Now, Dusty, when would you consider telling an athlete that they need to stop? They need to stop participating in sports until they get better. That's a great question, Heidi. And there's no, you know, perfect answer for it. I'm very individualized when I see my athletes and understanding what's causing the energy deficiency and causing this problem is number one. And once I can establish that, it kind of helps direct me a little bit. So if I say, okay, this is because we're not getting enough of this type of nutrient, that type of nutrient, and there's resistance of, well, I don't want to gain more weight. You know, that immediately brings me more into this as a clinical eating disorder. Right now is not the best time to play a sport until we can figure this out. Or if there is a stress, you know, bone stress injury, that's probably not what we should be doing is not running. You know, we have to handle that musculoskeletal injury, things like that. I've seen syncope, you know, because there's just such hypoglycemic episodes, things like that. So anything that's really very medically concerning needs to be addressed and they need to be held from their sport just for their safety. And then um, kind of coming back and seeing when they're okay to, to return. And when is the athlete okay to return to play? So deciding when an athlete can return to play is challenging, just like when to take them out, right? So treatment contracts for female athletes have been used, but there's real no evidence for its effect on male athletes. When it comes to returning to play, like the authors of the male athlete triad consensus statement use a similar approach to this system called the female athlete triad cumulative risk assessment tool. So they've kind of created one for males, so that can be used. There's other things, too, to say, okay, here's your severity. This means that you have to be watched doing this exercise and come back in that way. 
And then when we're talking about like muscular skeletal injuries, like bone stress injuries, you know, there's kind of a protocol of, you know, you're non-weight bearing, then you're slow weight bearing, then we do aquatic running, like things like that. You know, these risk assessment tools can be helpful in guiding clearance and return to play decisions in male athletes. But given that limited evidence, you know, really need to focus on this individual basis kind of like treatment approach. Mm, Okay. Yeah. Sounds like a common sense approach is warranted. Yes. What does the future hold for the male athlete triad, Dusty? So I appreciate the effort regarding the care of the male athletes through creating this male athlete triad consensus statement. You know, and although the findings and suggestions are very, very, very similar to the female athlete triad consensus statement, there's really little new information. And although proposals for diagnosis, treatment, and prevention are provided within this consensus statement, they're all based on such small studies unrelated populations, and like time-worn data. We need more. We just need more. And a lot of the research that we do get is more data-driven than it is like patient-driven. So we need to open our eyes to that. And hopefully that will lead to more research opportunities and better treatment. Okay. Yeah, it sounds like there is a, a lot more to learn, as with many areas in medicine. But I sense that this area in particular, the more we look into it, the better able we'll be able to help our patients. Absolutely. All right, Dusty. Well, thank you so very much for joining us once again to talk about this topic. And uh, I know we'll have you back again, especially when we find out more info. Thank you, Heidi. It's always a pleasure. You're minding your own business when all of a sudden a patient comes in you and says, I think I'm having a stroke. And you look at the patient deeply in the eyes and you note that they can't move half their face. Both the top bit and the bottom bit on the left side is all droopy. And you tell them to smile, it doesn't work on that side. And you tell them to raise their eyebrows and it doesn't work on that side. Are they having a stroke? What are you going to do? Mel, let's talk about Bell's palsy. Is it Bell's palsy or is it Bell palsy? I can tell you this, Gita, that the geeks that are putting this chapter together in Corpendium are having this big discussion. It's supposed to be called Bell palsy, not Bell's palsy. Have you ever heard it called Bell palsy? I've never heard it called Bell Palsy, but I've heard of this argument before, but I've never met anybody that actually thinks it should be called Bell Palsy. Apparently, there's a big move by uh, the different organizations to change it to Bell Palsy, and I don't care because it sounds better (laughs) when you say Bell's Palsy. So there. I agree. So let's just agree to call it Bell's Palsy. And if people write in to complain, then, well, phooey. Exactly. All right. So Bell's Palsy is also more officially known as idiopathic facial palsy. So let us go back to basics for a minute. Not quite as basic as Bell's versus Bell, but let's talk about what Bell's palsy is. Like, how do patients with Bell's palsy present? Well, Bell's palsy is an isolated, idiopathic, cranial nerve 7 palsy, so the facial nerve. And that's important because it has a pretty extensive differential diagnosis. And the idiopathic part is interesting because we think a lot of these are actually caused by viruses. And if you dug hard enough and did biopsies and did viral stuff, you might actually find a cause. And then does it stop being bells if you find uh, that there's a virus that causes it? Probably not. But it's to differentiate it from not obviously something else, not obviously a tumor, not obviously a stroke, not obviously uh, Ramsey-Hunt syndrome, which we'll get into. So It's, I can't find anything else. You've got a facial nerve palsy. 
probably many of them are actually caused by a virus that makes this thing swell up and then it stops working. So that's what uh, Bell's or Bell palsy is. It's the idiopathic form, but idiopathic is probably a virus in lots of cases. And the funny thing about Bell's palsy is that there are other symptoms that can go along with it that aren't entirely limited to that facial droop. And I think we don't talk about that a lot. But many times I've had patients tell me that their facial droop was preceded by pain behind their ear or tingling in their face. But there are a few other symptoms that can be associated with it too. Well, some people can get like hyperacusis, stuff like that. You're not supposed to get sensory changes. This is supposed to be mostly motor, but my experience is the same as yours, although it's different in the textbooks, is that there's actually a wide range of different neurological symptoms that people have that they experience. So sort of this completely painless idea that Bell's palsy is uh, you know, pure motor loss, I just don't see it. Often they've got pain. Often they've got sensory changes. Often it's preceded by pain, tingling sensations. And if they get sort of the squished nerve really proximal, they can actually have loss of uh, sort of taste and sensation in the anterior two-thirds of their tongue. There's lots of stuff going on there. Is that your experience? Absolutely. I actually think I probably really overimaged a lot of these early patients that I saw in my career because I was like, oh, your face tingled? That's not normal. Let's scan your head. Oh, like, you know, you have some other weird thing, a feeling in your eye? Like, that's weird. Okay, let's, let's scan your head. You're not supposed to have hearing loss. That's odd. So yeah, I definitely... But I think now as, as I've seen more and more of these patients and I have learned that list of like, oh, that can actually go along with it. It makes it a clinical, thinking about it clinically much, much easier. But I think probably the most important thing for us to know is how to distinguish a simple Bell's palsy from a central cause of a facial droop. So like a stroke, for example. So how good is our physical exam at doing that? It's actually pretty good if we look at how often we miss bad things. So the key is that you've got a facial nerve palsy. And the key with this facial nerve palsy, everything's drooping and the eyes aren't closing properly and there's slobber coming in and out of the corner of your mouth. The key is that that's all there is, that there is no central things going on. You don't have ataxia. You don't have stroke symptoms. You don't have other central findings. So this is all about it being peripheral. And that means that your entire face, both the lower part of your face and the upper part of your face, your forehead, is all paralyzed. Now, again, in the textbooks, classically, this is perfect paralysis and you can't wrinkle and nothing moves. But people can present pretty early where they've still got some function. So it can be a little tricky. But classically, in central causes of facial paralysis, because you're getting innovation from both sides of your brain, you can actually retain that ability to wrinkle your forehead. But like I say, sometimes it can be a little hard and you, nobody's going to, you know, kill you for every now and then doing a little extra imaging because you weren't quite clear. But most of the time, a good neurological exam that shows that you've got no ability to move that face on one side, both the upper and lower, and no other neurological findings. You can walk fine and your neurological exam is normal. Then it's probably going to be Bell's palsy. I would add to that, you should do a really good cranial nerve examination. You should examine along the facial nerve and the parotid, for example. You don't want to miss any external tumors. But we're pretty good at it, it turns out. So there's one stroke that actually can produce what looks exactly like a Bell's, and it's actually a pontine stroke. So the seventh cranial nerve comes out of the pons. So you can actually stroke in your pons right near where it comes out. But that happens, it's estimated, less than 1% of the time. So you get her seeing the patient, you did everything right, got a good history, you did a good exam, it all looks peripheral, peripheral, peripheral. And about 0.8% of the time, I don't know how they work this out, 
when you follow people up, it turns out they actually had a stroke. But we're not going to scan over 100 people and do all that radiation expense when it just looks like a Bell's palsy. If it then doesn't get better or if other things happen down the line, then you might image them. But initially, you can get away with just a really good exam and a well-documented exam. So you mentioned tumor. I think there are things that are further down the list from stroke when we're thinking about central stuff that would be important to think about. But tumor is vascular causes. They're on the list, but obviously very hard for us to diagnose. But is there anything that might raise our suspicion that this might not be a straightforward Bell's and that we should dig a little deeper? I think sometimes patients who have central causes are supposed to, or tumors are supposed to present much more slowly over weeks. Is there anything to that? Yeah, I think so. Again, you're looking for, this is what you're basically going to label this person as, as a peripheral thing. I'm going to give you a few meds, which we'll get into, and you don't need to do any workup. And you do not want to miss the people who do have a central cause that do need a workup. So the differential diagnosis is quite long, but classically Bell's comes on pretty quickly, within a day or two, usually from when they first have those symptoms to when they get that paralysis. And it usually only lasts for a few weeks and then goes away. So if you've got somebody that's saying, well, this has been coming on over a month, eh, that's probably not Bell's palsy. Or if you're seeing them three months later and they've got that facial paralysis and now you know, they're saying, well, my hand doesn't feel quite right, that's probably not Bell's palsy. So it's pretty quick onset and it gets better reasonably fast. But the differential diagnosis is actually pretty long. I'm going to read you, because I'm a good reader, <laughs> from the Corpedium chapter and it says, Differential diagnosis includes, but is not limited to, Ramsey-Hunt syndrome, HIV, tuberculosis, sarcoidosis, diabetes, middle ear tumors, otitis media, Guillain-Barre syndrome, temporal bone fracture, pontine angle tumors, pontine lesions, strokes, multiple sclerosis, metastasis, or tumor. That's a long list. <laughs> it is a long list. <laughs> but you shouldn't be afraid because you could exclude most of those again by, is it central, is it not central? So we want the non-central form. And then if you take a good look in the ear, you can get rid of Ramsey-Hunt syndrome, which basically produces a very similar syndrome, except you have these vesicles in the external canal. They can also spread across the face. They can be on the tip of the nose, which is, uh, what's that called? Hutchinson's sign, I think? Hutchinson's. Hutchinson's, yeah. Which is really you know, bad because that suggests that these herpes vesicles are actually in your eyeball, and that's bad, and you need ophthalmology to see them. So again, a good history, a good physical exam, you can rule out most of these things. But there is potentially a lot of cause of a peripheral facial nerve paralysis and central paralysis. But again, good history, good physical. Most of the time, you don't need to go further. Yeah, I think one of the things us East Coasters think about a lot is Lyme. Maybe not something that people think about as much on the West Coast where you are, but Lyme is certainly up there. We're always thinking about Lyme disease. And I guess HSV is the other sort of classic one we've been sort of empirically at times treating patients with acyclovir, but uh, clinically, it doesn't really seem like a whole lot goes along with that that you'd see. So, all right. So if a patient comes in with this classic presentation of bells, which we now can include some weirdo things like facial tingling or pain behind the ear or things like that, but they can't close their eye fully and they can't really raise their eyebrows and it definitely seems like a peripheral facial nerve lesion. And it came on relatively rapidly, and there aren't any other really weird neurologic symptoms, and their neurologic exam is normal. It sounds like we can skip the brain imaging emergently or labs or anything like that, unless you're thinking about drawing blood for Lyme or TSH or those sorts of things. Would we agree on that? Yeah, I'd absolutely agree on that. Again, the first time you see this, it's a little bit scary because it looks like a stroke. And it's often the patient comes in because they think they're having a stroke. 
because, you know, they looked in the mirror and like, oh my gosh, my face is sagging oh. and I've been told that's what a stroke is. So the first few times you probably do get a little overexcited and image too frequently. But once you uh, calm down and you've seen a few of these and you're very confident in your physical exam and you're going to get the patient followed up, I think the overwhelming majority of these can be diagnosed with no imaging and no lab tests. Now, you talk about Lyme disease. You know how many cases of Lyme disease I've cared for? How many? That would be zero. (laughs) (laughs) It's such a different experience out here. Like, it's just, you know, I'm in Rhode Island. There are parts of Rhode Island where, like, I don't know, in the summer, everybody has Lyme. Just Lyme, Lyme, Lyme all day long. And then we get the occasional facial nerve palsy thrown in and you have to wonder like, oh, is this, do we throw doxy in with everything else? But yeah, no, we see a lot of Lyme. Yeah, I was just reading actually in the Corpendium chapter that up to 8% of people with Lyme disease will actually present with a facial nerve palsy. So I was going to ask you, because you're the expert, much more than I am. So what do you do when you're in an area where there's lots of Lyme and somebody comes in with bell palsy? Do you routinely send titers and do stuff and give them doxy or what do you do? Well, it depends what our suspicion is ahead of time. If someone says, like, I was bitten by a tick or they come in with the erythema chronic migraines rash or something like that, then you say, oh, like, you probably do have Lyme. We're just going to start treating you empirically. Maybe you can send serologies if it's far enough out that they might be positive. Sometimes we'll just sort of hedge our bets and say, like, okay, if you're this far along, we'll send the test, but we're going to skip the doxy for now. So I think there's a lot of practice variability in there. One of the things that really stumped me when I was starting was, okay, if you think that this is facial palsy caused by Lyme, does that mean that it's central Lyme and do you need IV antibiotics? And it turns out that, no, you can still treat that with oral doxycycline. Yes, thank you for saying that. There is actually, um, you can do Ceftrax, and as well as I said, I was just reading about this. I, again, I know nothing about Lyme disease, but you can bring them in every day, give them two grams of IV Ceftriaxone for 28 days. That seems a bit excessive. Most people are saying, just give them a full course of doxycycline. But of course, I should say, you know, pregnancy, for example, uh, not so much of the doxycycline, probably the ceftriaxone. Yeah. And you know what? So let's talk about other treatment. We just, we just hit doxy for a second, but let's talk about what we just normally send people home. And we might think plus or minus doxy. For a long time, we were treating everybody with prednisone and acyclovir. And then I feel like this keeps changing. So what are we doing now? Yeah. You know, we're of a similar generation and we watch this play out in real time. So first of all, we were doing nothing for it. That didn't seem very fun. <laughs> then we started giving steroids and the study started to show, oh, it looks like steroids actually work and then they don't work. You know how the literature goes over time. But it does appear that if you pull all of the data, that steroids probably do make a significant effect. They probably make you resolve a little faster. And most importantly, you are less likely to have residual problems. I should have said it up front. The vast majority of people are going to get better and they're not going to have any significant residual effects or weakness. But there is a subset that do, and it looks like steroids can reduce that subset even more. So steroids are still in. And then the question is, again, we watched this literature as we were in residency and early after that, that then people were finding, oh, we think that there's actually herpes simplex virus is the cause of a lot of these. So why don't we throw a cyclovir at them? And we started doing that. And some studies have been quite positive and some studies not so much. If you look at the current guidelines, most people use this argument. It might help some people. It certainly doesn't appear to hurt. So steroids for everybody and probably acyclovir for everybody is okay. Not everybody does that because the data is not great, but 
There's like four different big societies, and most of them suggest because these drugs are pretty cheap and they've got good side effect profiles and they may help, they're suggesting you know, a cyclovir plus steroids, for example, for the vast majority of patients. I think one other treatment consideration that we should address is the poor eyeball that is left unprotected by this lid that can't close. And I think this is actually something that I see sometimes my residents forgetting to address. It's just sort of an afterthought. But caring for that eye is really, really important. We don't want that eye to dry out. We don't want it to develop corneal ulcerations or anything horrible like that. What's your regimen? What do you send people home with? So I have seen actually probably the biggest corneal ulcer I've ever seen was in somebody who had Bell's palsy who wasn't told how to look after it. So I do simple things. I give them some drops, uh, some lubrication that's a little bit thicker. And then I either patch or show them how to tape their eye down, particularly at night. But I think it's a reasonable thing to do during the day as well. Do you have any tricks that you do? No, that's pretty much it for me too. I think at night, sometimes I, instead of the drops, I'll have them put in like a lacquer lube some kind of ointment that stays in there longer just in case the eye does open overnight. It's still got that barrier protection in there. I like doing that at night. All right. And finally, I think it's probably important that we do refer these patients for follow-up because some percentage of them aren't going to get better over a few weeks. And if the symptoms don't improve in a few weeks, then there might be other outpatient testing to do and MRIs and EMGs and who knows what other random stuff that they do after that. But there's going to be stuff that they have to do. Yeah. So I should add in here, after a bit of peer review from Vanessa Cuddy, that you know patching is kind of out in a lot of people's minds. I try to do a literature review to find out patching versus no patching for the treatment of you can't close your eyeball enough in Bell's palsy, and I actually couldn't find any literature on it. And if you kind of do a random Google search from different societies, the Mayo Clinic and these kind of people, about what they're telling people to do, some are saying you should patch and some are saying you shouldn't. So just know that that's a controversy, but you can patch somebody's eye but they can still get a corneal abrasion and stuff under it because the patch doesn't actually work well. So just know the controversy exists. There are patches and non-patches and you'll define who you are. Yeah, I think it's important to follow them up. They'll want to be followed up. They're going to be very anxious about this. So you make them feel better. It's not a stroke, but you might have some residual effects and your face is never going to be quite the same. They want to Mm. follow up and see people. You do want to see that the progression is, you know, that they are getting better, that there's no new symptoms, that This is not one of those sort of one percenters where you did everything right, but there's that stupid little stroke that mimics it so well that not the best doctor in the world could pick it up. Mm. So I think that's reasonable. I really think it's important, though, for that eyeball to make sure that they're, you know, we've done the right thing. We've taught the person how to look after this eyeball, but somebody should take a look in there, you know, every now and then to make sure that there isn't a big corneal abrasion or something that has developed. So I think follow-up's important. You know, one thing I didn't say specifically is how much prednisone or how much steroid. So there's lots of different recommendations. The studies are all over the place, but most people are giving 60 to 80 milligrams a day for about a week. And then the acyclovir, 400 milligrams, uh, five times a day for about a week. So get it. There's a lot more to this, a lot more to read. You can catch it in the Corpendium textbook. Uh, The main author was Megan Fix and the co-authors were Wen Su Cheng and Dana. uh, How do you say that? I'm hoping it's Kuja. I would guess that. Dana, apologies if we didn't say that right. Yes, sorry, Dana. And Dana's an MBBS, which is the medical degree that the British give people outside of Britain. So I've got one of those as well. So yay, Dana. So go read about it. Hopefully she'll forgive us for pronouncing her name wrong. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) It's a great chapter. You should read it. The deep dive section goes into a lot more detail. So 
Gita, thank you for going over this very fun syndrome. It's really cool to make that diagnosis and make the patient feel better that they're not stroking out. Always fun talking to you, Mel. Talk to you soon. Rural Medicine Talks. Okay, so let me set the scene. This took place in a rural emergency room. It was a busy evening shift in the winter before COVID-19 swept the world. There were lots of coughing babies in the eMERGE that night and an apparent urosepsis outbreak in the elders' home. Of course, her name's Cardi B. This is a rural medicine case, and it's a little different. The electrolyte machine was down, the lab was short-staffed, the ER was short one nurse already because they'd gone on a transfer. Things were under control, but only barely. And I remember thinking to myself, if something bonkers happens right now, we could be in trouble. Soon after that, of course, there came a call from the home care nurse stating that a patient they follow at home wasn't feeling well. She was feeling nauseated, tired, and weak. I usually do home care and will try to visit people at home if I can, but as I was working in the ER and as the nurse felt the patient needed evaluation, I asked them to bring the patient in. So an hour or so later, the patient arrived. She was a 77-year-old female with lung cancer, for which she had been undergoing treatment for the previous about two to three years. She was also on hemodialysis, she had a history of hypertension and diabetes, as well as atrial fibrillation, for which she took rivaroxaban. Apparently, she'd finished a course of radiation about two weeks before, and she was due to see her oncology team in a follow-up in another few weeks. And overall, she was extremely motivated to keep going on with treatment and to enjoy more time with her family. This motivation really came to the forefront because only a few weeks before her husband had died after being ill for a very long time and he'd actually been first brought into the hospital in the exact same ER room where she was sitting now. So everyone was a little emotional. But I got a little bit of history to try and figure out what was going on today. So it turned out that two days ago she'd coughed up a little bit of blood when she woke up in the morning, but she didn't think that much about it. That had happened from time to time in the past few years. In fact, that's what had actually led her to being diagnosed in the first place. She hadn't coughed up a lot this time, and she felt totally fine otherwise, so she went on with her day. Later in the evening, though, she started to feel more tired and was starting to get nauseated. She never actually threw up, but she was pretty uncomfortable from the nausea. She denied any recent fever or chills, chest pain, headache, abdominal pain, urinary, or bowel symptoms. She did have some shortness of breath, but this wasn't new, and as I said, she did have an underlying diagnosis of lung cancer. She was definitely eating less and hadn't had a bowel movement in the previous few days, but she was certainly able to tolerate liquids for the most part. Okay, so you got an elderly lady, history of lung cancer, getting aggressive therapy, wants aggressive therapy, a little bit of hematemesis slash hemoptysis, and now feeling nauseated. Let's get to the exam. On exam, she looked tired, but otherwise she was pretty much the same as her usual self. Her blood pressure was 108 over 76, her heart rate was 92, she was afebrile, SATs were 94%, and her respirate was 22, but this was her baseline. Her extremities were a wee bit cool, and she did have scant bowel sounds, and some mild epigastric discomfort on palpation, but otherwise the exam was really unremarkable. She retched a few times when I was examining her, and she said she was very worried that she was going to throw up, but again, I never actually saw her vomit. So what do I do now? We had this patient with advanced cancer who was nauseated and fatigued, and who, it turns out, had had a small amount of hemoptysis a few days prior. Cardi's about to give you her differential diagnosis, but uh, let's make this a little bit more interactive. What's your differential diagnosis? What do you think could be going on acutely in this patient with obviously a fairly complicated past medical history? I'll give you some time. What you doing now? Okay, so hear what uh, Cardi said, and uh, you can compare notes. 
My differential at this point was really pretty broad. I was thinking about early bowel obstruction from either a metastatic mass effect or perhaps her opioids, ACS because she's certainly high risk, pancreatitis, and electrolyte issues from renal failure or maybe from a perineoplastic syndrome. Now, given her overall condition, having active cancer and being on dialysis, I needed to clarify her level of care form before I could decide how to proceed. She had signed herself level of care one, which in our institution means that she wanted everything possible to be tried in order to restore her life, prolong her life. But she had seen her oncologist a few times since that was signed, and because we didn't have copies of her recent appointment notes, I wasn't sure if her prognosis or wishes for her future had changed. So I double checked. I double checked and she was still level one. And after confirming that she was, I ordered a few fairly straightforward labs and an ECG. The ECG was really unremarkable, nothing alarming, no clear ischemic changes. And initial labs were pretty unremarkable as well. Her potassium was 5.7, but she was due for dialysis the next day. So that was pretty good. And life base was normal. Her abdominal series x-ray showed some gas, but there was no signs of obstruction or ileus. So where did that leave me? Well, really no further forwards in terms of why she was tired and nauseated. But then, just as I was heading in to talk to her, a nurse came out of the room carrying a pile of very soiled bedclothing, accompanied by the distinct smell of Melina. The nurse had already called her colleague for help, but clearly this patient just moved up the list in terms of people I was worried about in the ER at that time. The patient was now very pale and she looked sweaty and anxious. Her family were there and they were trying to get her dressed into a fresh gown. I noticed a fleck of blood on her chin at that point and asked if she had coughed again. She said, oh yeah, a few minutes before I had that huge bowel movement, I burped and coughed and she wiped her mouth on a Kleenex. Apparently she was about to check the Kleenex to see if there was blood in it when the Melina overtook her and she was distracted by that. Her daughter then retrieved the Kleenex from the bedside table and opened it up, revealing a lot of bright red blood. And now I was really concerned. This anticoagulated patient with a history of lung cancer and recent radiation therapy in an area adjacent to her bronchus had coughed up a small amount of blood two days before, felt progressively weaker and nauseated since then, and now had Melina with a recurrence of hemoptysis. This, as you would say, Mel, is no bueno. Well, I'm no doctor and my Spanish is limited, but I would have to agree. This is no bueno. Now, I was worried now that perhaps her primary lung lesion or radiation damage to the area had caused invasion or erosion near or into her great vessels. So I grabbed her chart and tried to find her recent CT report. If I was wrong on where her lesion was, then perhaps this was purely a GI source. That wouldn't be great, but it certainly seemed better than a potential airway vessel esophageal fistula situation. But before I could get to the report, the patient answered the question for me. Not with words, but with how she presented. She began coughing. Only a little bit at first, but then it turned into a coughing fit, and I noticed a few pink flecks landing on her hospital gown with each cough. And then the bleeding started. Blood began to pour out of her mouth. She was gagging on it. She was coughing and she was crying. And her family were terrified. And if I'm being honest, I was pretty scared too. This was kind of my worst fear happening. It seemed likely a fistula or erosion between the vessels and her GI tract and bronchial tree. And there was simply no way this lady was going to survive given she was in a tiny remote hospital, which at that time only had six units of O-negative blood in its blood bank, and many hours by plane from any specialized intervention. So I needed to tell her and her family this quickly, because she was dying. I explained the situation, and they actually accepted it more quickly than I would have anticipated. Given she was a level of care one when she arrived in the emergency room, and knowing her family and their desire for her to be kept going, 
I really thought it was going to take longer for them to process everything I was saying. And I certainly wouldn't have faulted them for doing so. It is incomprehensible to come in with fatigue and only an hour later be told you're about to die, particularly when you have survived so many other things in your life. But the amount of blood she was losing was a glaring and stark visual cue for the reality of the situation. I explained that I wanted to use aggressive palliative measures, meaning, and I didn't use this terminology with them, but that I wanted to snow her as quickly as possible so she would be unaware of the process of hemorrhaging to death. They were all so, so sad, and she was clearly devastated, but she said, I want it to be quick. I had already sent the nurses to gather as many dark towels and sheets as she could find. Surgical linens and dark towels or face cloth are my preferred equipment in these cases because they absorb blood effectively, and the color of the bright red blood is muted and not quite so horrifying for patients and visitors alike. Bright red blood on white sheets is a very stark image. In any home care patient for whom I fear a terminal hemorrhage, I like to plan ahead and have them keep dark sheets and towels at the bedside. But we hadn't even reached that stage with this patient, so it was all being done on the fly. I also called for some emesis basins lined with surgical cloths, and you use the cloths in the basin to absorb the blood and to dampen the sound of the blood pouring into the metal basin. Now in our hospital, we have some pre-written order sheets for patients at risk of terminal hemorrhage, and I asked that the meds for these be drawn up. We gave her 10 milligrams of morphine and 5 milligrams of midazolam and 0.4 milligrams of scopolamine every 10 minutes, and we did this twice, and at that point, she became unconscious. In the interval while waiting for the meds to work, she had vomited up at least 500 cc's of blood and had another significant episode of melina, and there was nothing to suggest that the bleeding was going to stop while she still had a blood pressure and a functioning heart. But she was able to quickly say goodbye to her family members, and then she fell asleep. We removed the IV and the monitor and cleaned her up and let her family sit with her as she took her last breaths. It was actually a lovely moment between her family members who all kept saying how grateful they were that they had come to the hospital with her, but you could also see that they were still in shock and would not realize what had really happened for many days to come. So looking back on this case now, it reminded me of a few key factors. For my home care patients, as I said, if there is even the slightest risk that a terminal hemorrhage could occur as the patient is dying, it is important to warn the patient and the family of this risk even if it's only a mention and an outline of a plan what to do. Most people fear dying from cancer means either dying in pain or dying with extreme dyspnea, and they don't really picture the hemorrhaging. So anything to prepare them for this possibility, without overwhelming them, of course, is a key to good palliation. Similarly, being sure to regularly check follow-up scans and reports because the status of a patient will change. Now, some might think how terrible for this patient to be in a remote place where there was really no hope in heck of survival because there were no specialists nearby to perform bronchs or ablations or what have you. But in this instance, I would actually counter that our little hospital in the middle of nowhere might have been exactly the right place for this patient. If she were in a larger center, she would have still bled that much, and she would have been headed for an ICU or an OR or an interventional radiology suite. But would she have made it? Quite possibly, given the amount of blood she was losing, she could have died en route, in an elevator, or a hallway with a stressed-out orderly desperately trying to get her to the second floor. This way, she was with her family, in the room, where her husband had recently died, and she was on her traditional territory. Despite being level of care one when she arrived, she was so quick to see that she couldn't survive this, she allowed us to palliate her aggressively and effectively. So we need to be upfront with our patients and their families, and explain clearly our prognosis changes suddenly so our patients have the chance to make an informed decision about how they spend their last minutes or hours.
A lot of good information here. In a case that's really tragic, I actually had one very similar to that. And we didn't do some of those tricks like using the dark bedclothes, but we did aggressively sedate the patient. In my case, this patient knew that this could happen, had actually been instructed by their family medicine doc that this was a possibility. So when they came to the emergency department, they kind of knew what was going on. The only difference we did, in addition to the sort of aggressive sedation that Cardi did, was to actually place an ET tube. And we did this not to ventilate the patient, but actually to reduce sort of the blood all over the place kind of scenario that we had. And we connected the ET tube to suction, and there was just a tremendous amount of blood pouring out of that. But it sort of appeared to make the patient feel a little better, although they were aggressively sedated. And it certainly made the family a bit more comfortable that we were sort of extracting this blood without it just pouring all over the place. And this idea of the dark bed sheets, both on the bed, around the patient, and even in containers which are collecting maybe somebody who's actively vomiting, is another great pearl. The key thing here is to recognize this can happen, particularly in that situation where you've got that patient with radiation to the chest, and a little bit of coughing, and a little bit of blood. Is that blood coming from the airway? Is it coming from the GI tract? Or, as in this case, could it be coming from both? And this is the harbinger of a gigantic terminal bleed that you're going to have to manage very quickly and you are going to have to switch from starting to work the patient up to aggressively palliating. When this happens, it happens fast, so be ready for it. If you can be heads up, if you can have clear communication, if the patients understand what's going on and that you're going to make sure that this transition is as comfortable as possible, they will thank you for a very, very long time. Primary Care Medical Abstracts With Ken and Steve Welcome to the June 2022 episode of PCMA. I'm Ken Milne, and here, live in person, co-hosting Steve Brown. It's live for us, but not live for them. But we are in person for the first time ever after more than three years of yeah. doing this. And, and you know, I figured I had to do something exciting. So I brought you something, Steve. Oh, from, from way up north. From the Canada. Oh, my gosh. So this is an audio program. So you're going to have to describe what I've just handed you. Sweet sippin' original Canadian maple whiskey. Dang. <laughs> None will be consumed on the show, <laughs> but I can't guarantee that won't happen after the show. But I thought, this is going to be a sweet time. We finally get together to do the recording. I mean, we always do it live, right? We record right, live. Right, right. Uh, but never in the same room. And so here we are, sitting in the same room, Phoenix, Arizona, recording. I thought we needed to celebrate with a little Canadian maple whiskey. And that's amazing. And I know you said that we won't be consuming this on the show, but there's no way for anybody to know that for sure. <laughs> so if we start get, if it starts uh, degrading by the end, then well, people might know because, why. You know, I have so many dad jokes anyways, usually, but I'll try to restrain myself and engage my frontal lobe. Well, this is very kind of you. And thank you for visiting Phoenix. And we're going to go on an epic hike and explore the mountains of Phoenix later today. But first, 10 papers. 10 papers, yes. Let's get to them. Paper one. So I've got the first one, and this is regular acetaminophen use and blood pressure in people with hypertension. The PATH-BP trial 
published in Circulation 2022. So this paper really caught my eye, Steve, because I've been recommending patients use acetaminophen over NSAIDs for chronic pain, you know, especially if they have hypertension. So the objective of this study was to determine if regular use of acetaminophen had any impact on the blood pressure of patients with high blood pressure. So it was double-blinded, placebo-controlled, crossover study in Scotland. And if it's not Scottish, it's crap. Now they're going to think we were already into the maple whiskey. (laughs) I'm doing bad Scottish accents. You're not helping your case. So these were adult patients with stable blood pressure. And uh, the blood pressure had to be treated under 150 over 95. Or if it was untreated, it has to be between 135 to 150 systolic and 85 to 95 diastolic. So that's, those are the patients that are in here. And then they randomized them to get 1,000 milligrams or one gram of acetaminophen four times a day, QID. So just regular around the clock or a matched placebo for two weeks. Then they had a two-week washout period and then they crossed over. And so if they were in the placebo arm first, now they're getting the acetaminophen and vice versa. The primary outcome was the change in mean daytime systolic blood pressure from baseline. They had 103 patients in the study, and the mean daytime systolic blood pressure increased by almost 5 millimeters of mercury. And the diastolic also went up by 1.6. So this was an interesting hypothesis, Steve. I mean, acetaminophen and blood pressure? Who'd have thunk? But the trial's limited because, you know, they only ran it for two weeks, right? So that's not a very long study. So it's unknown if this observed increase of five millimeters would have been continued over months or years of chronic acetaminophen use. And the short-term bump in their blood pressure, you know, statistically significant, I'm pretty sure that if my blood pressure ran five millimeters higher for two weeks, that's going to have no impact. I mean, we go back to the Framingham data. What was that? Five, 10, 15? I mean, we're talking decades of having high blood pressure, not two weeks. And this population didn't have chronic pain. So they weren't treating patients with chronic pain. So it wasn't the patients that we would be recommending acetaminophen over NSAIDs for. It would have been interesting, I guess, to have another arm using two weeks of an NSAID. But I guess with the concern about NSAIDs, and if you've already got hypertension, do you want to knock off some more nephrons? But it would have been interesting to see if there would have been a similar rise in their blood pressure. Yeah, and to me, the biggest... So this is intriguing. I think it's a little surprising. Yeah, I was surprised. But I, we, we don't really give patients four grams of Tylenol around the clock. Well, I think we're, we're not supposed to. I think the limit's now three grams, right? Because of all the external other sources that could creep in there that put them into that toxic range. So I thought a few years ago, we've been backing off from the four to the three. Right, but even three, you, we tend to use Tylenol more like, oh, if you have a little pain, take, we don't say, you know, take it round the clock. So that to me is the most, the biggest threat to generalizability is just the dosing. We're not going to take Tylenol round the clock. And I agree for two weeks, there's no patient-oriented outcomes, but acetaminophen doesn't work that well for lots of things. And so should we be using it? It's probably worth trying. Are we going to recommend four grams or even three grams around the clock? Probably not very often, but still enough for me to, it's, it's like a thing that makes you go, hmm. You know, these aren't jokes. These are thoughts. These are things that make you say. <laughs> but a pause, a pause. Yeah. Go, oh yeah, I read. Yeah. Okay. I know. I don't have to worry about it, but I read something about that. Right. right? You know, sort of like that red flag that goes up and said, should I be worried? Nah, I wouldn't be worried about this at this time, especially using for short term. 
Yeah, and there's also data that NSAIDs don't have as profound effect on negative health as we thought they did too. So this doesn't change what I would do, which is just if someone has pain, high blood pressure or not, they could sprinkle in a little NSAID, a little acetaminophen, either would be fine. Bottom line. Regular acetaminophen use can cause a short-term increase in blood pressure in patients with hypertension, but it's unclear if this has really any clinical significance. Paper two. Abstract number two, we're going to talk about prediction of end-stage kidney disease using estimated glomerular filtration rate with and without race, a prospective cohort study from Annals of Internal Medicine, January 2022. I learned a lot from this paper. I think it's really important in today's climate where we have learned that race is not an appropriate way to measure GFR. Well, we did get some feedback about race on, the, on a previous episode. Right, we did, yes. And we're going to talk about it today again. So we, we do know that low GFR or glomerular filtration rate is associated with an increased risk of end-stage kidney disease, and that GFR is used to determine stage of kidney disease and make clinical decisions like who should be considered for transplant. Equations can provide an estimated GFR or eGFR based on blood tests like creatinine, which is what we've been used to, and cystatin C, and you can also include patient characteristics like age, gender, and race. And using race to help estimate GFR, however, is problematic. In the words of these authors, quote, race is an ill-defined social construct and its use in medicine may perpetuate racial inequities in healthcare delivery. So these authors aim to compare the ESKD and stage kidney disease prediction performance of different equations. So this is an observational prospective cohort study at seven U.S. clinical centers, including almost 4,000 participants with chronic kidney disease. ESKD was defined as initiation of dialysis or transplantation. So that's a pretty important patient-oriented outcome. And they followed the patients for 16 years. And so they compared the predictive performance of five eGFR equations using a combination of the two different lab tests that we talked about earlier and patient characteristics, including and not including race. And then an equation that I was not familiar with, but seems really useful, the kidney failure risk equation, KFRE, which uses age, sex, eGFR, and the urinary albumin-creatinine ratio. So you can throw that in, and that might help too. So what were the results? 856 of these patients developed ESKD. So that's a lot. That's close to a quarter of them. And the KFRE score was superior for predicting two-year incidence of ESKD compared with eGFR alone, although they're both really pretty good. The area under the curve for both of them are in the 0.9 to 0.95 range, which you will hardly ever see a test that has an area under the curve that strong. The creatinine equation without race adjustment was superior among Black patients Compared to an eGFR of less than 20, a KFRE score greater than 20% had similar specificity for predicting two-year ESKD risk around 0.95, but higher sensitivity around 0.7 compared to 0.5. So what this tells us that abnormal results in either of these two equations are good at ruling in the likelihood of ESKD in two years, but normal results for KFRE are better at ruling out the possibility compared to an eGFR. So 
The KFRE score better predicts two-year risk for ESKD compared with EGFR alone, regardless of race adjustment. But really, all of these calculators are pretty good at predicting the likelihood of end-stage kidney disease. Yeah, I just looked at it. You know, at the end of the day, I don't really think it matters which score you use. I mean, I'd like to get as much of the bias and systemic racism out of the practice of medicine and out of society in general. But if your kidneys aren't doing well, they're not doing well. And so if your kidneys aren't doing well, and we're going to predict how bad you're going to do in the future, why don't we focus on the moment, on the now, and help people control their blood pressure, minimize exposure to nephrotoxic drugs, control their diabetes in a reasonable way. And that'll probably have more of an impact than saying, hey, which calculator am I going to use? Right. But we definitely don't need race to help predict the likelihood of end-stage kidney disease. And this has been now recommended by other prominent organizations to abolish this practice, including the United States Pathology and Laboratory Society, National Kidney Foundation, American Society of Nephrology. So we don't need race. It doesn't help. Yeah, because it's been woven into the fabric of society, and now we've got to start pulling those threads out. And it's in our EHR. I mean, when I pull up my EHR, it has that embedded in it with race. And it'd be nice to pull those threads out, especially if those threads don't matter. I mean, race matters, but you know, putting it in there. Absolutely. Bottom line. Estimated GFR calculators without race and the kidney failure risk equation are useful to predict end-stage kidney disease. Paper three. Abstract number three, post-diagnosis smoking cessation and reduced risk for lung cancer progression and mortality, a prospective cohort study in Annals of Internal Medicine 2021. Now, I've often thought, what's the use of having someone quit smoking once you've been diagnosed with lung cancer? I'm like, isn't the horse out of the barn? Aren't you closing the barn door and the, bye-bye, horse, bye-bye. <laughs> you know, being a rural doctor like I am, but this made me think about this more. The objective of the study was to determine whether quitting smoking after getting a diagnosis of lung cancer affects the risk for disease progression and mortality. So it was a multi-center prospective observational study of patients with non-small cell lung cancer. Population included 517 current smokers, and by current, they had to smoke at least one cigarette per day for at least one year or more prior to the diagnosis of their lung CA. And then they were diagnosed with early stage non-small cell, and the mean age was 61 years of age, and 89% were male. The outcomes of interest were overall survival, progression-free survival, lung cancer-specific mortality, and then all-cause mortality. So over this study period, 63% died, 53% had cancer-specific deaths, and 34% had disease progression over the average seven-year follow-up time period. The adjusted median overall survival time was 22 months longer in patients who quit smoking versus those who continued to smoke. Well, 22 months, I mean, that's almost two years longer. Higher five-year overall survival rate and uh, better progression-free survival were observed all among these patients who had quit rather than those who continued smoking. And smoking cessation remained associated with a decreased risk after adjustments for all-cause mortality, cancer-specific mortality, and disease progression. So the, the study was conducted in Russia and we could have issues with external validity, 
on how they treat their non-small cell cancers compared to what we do in a Western healthcare system. Another limitation of this study was smoking cessation was self-reported and not confirmed, so we do not know for sure. Death was determined using death certificates, and we know how inaccurate they can be. But whether they were alive or dead was pretty easy to tell. The largest threat to the validity is the observational nature of the study, though. There could have been some unmeasured confounders that were responsible for the observed differences reported in the study itself. The easiest obvious observational bias would just be the people that stopped smoking were more likely to be healthier in other ways. Also, maybe they ate better, maybe they started exercising more. changed their life and they refocused and other, you know, threw up their hands and said, what the heck? Right. But a five-year, the likelihood of making it to five years, number needed to treat of eight. Yeah, no, I... That's, so whether or not that's true, that's something you can tell your patients. Like, Mm -hmm. you have lung cancer, that's bad. Like, we're going to treat that in every way that we can. But one thing that I can do as your family doctor is help you quit smoking. And when you think of the effects of smoking, like on wound healing, for we've seen data on like post-op back surgery, how people who don't smoke do better. Maybe there's something, most of these patients got surgery. So maybe it's just a surgery recovery thing. But to me, it's a, this is a big deal, even though the treatment standards in Russia might be different. It might not be as generalizable. This You can take this to the bank as far as I'm concerned. Okay, well, Steve's going to the bank and I'll give the bottom line. Bottom line. Smoking cessation is a good recommendation for almost all patients. And this study provides weak evidence of benefit for those with early non-small cell lung cancer. Paper four. All right, paper number four was recommended to us by our boss, <laughs> yeah, Mel Herbert. So we're going to talk about this because he is our boss, and I'm not going to do an Australian accent. Crikey. <laughs> yeah, yeah, his name's Bruce. Hello, Bruce. Hello, <laughs> Sheila. <laughs> right. No, it's Mel Herbert, not Bruce Herbert. Right. So, Mel, thank you for this recommendation, and please don't fire us because of my analysis of this paper. Or my bad accent. Right. <laughs> Definitely don't fire Ken because of his bad accent. All right. So, this is vitamin D and marine omega-3 fatty acid supplementation and incident autoimmune disease, the vital randomized control trial, BMJ, January 2022. The first result we saw of the VITAL trial was published in 2019 New England Journal of Medicine found that supplementation with vitamin D did not result in a lower incidence of invasive cancer or cardiovascular events than placebo. VITAL is an acronym for vitamin D and omega-3 trial. So you could, the, the amount of ink that's been spilled on vitamin D is shocking, but this is, this is one of the bigger studies, the VITAL study. But you know, these authors, they weren't content to just look at invasive cancer and cardiovascular events because some people feel strongly that, you know, vitamin D has some anti-inflammatory characteristics. And so they wanted to test it to see if it can decrease the incidence of autoimmune disease. So the authors conducted a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial with a two-by-two factorial design in the United States. And this was the exact same patient population that they studied in the trial that was previously released. The interventions were vitamin D3, which is cholecalciferol, 2,000 international units per day, or marine N3, which is also called omega-3, fatty acids, one gram per day. And fortunately, they did 
specify incident autoimmune disease as a pre-specified endpoint. They started that before trial recruitment, and so it was the primary outcome in this report. That doesn't tell you that they didn't pre-specify a whole bunch of other endpoints, and then they just picked the ones that worked. Yeah, we had 30 different endpoints, and guess what? This one we are publishing. Right. I wonder why. But we pre-specified all the other ones also. So they tracked the patients with annual questionnaires, and then autoimmune disease was confirmed by an expert review panel. They got permission to review the medical records. The, the main diseases they looked at were rheumatoid arthritis, polymyalgia rheumatica, autoimmune thyroid disease, psoriasis, and then they also had this category of all others. The vital trial had almost 26,000 patients. They were men over 50 and women over 55. The mean age was 67. So this is an older population. They followed them for a mean of five years, and they had a pretty good mix of patients from different racial backgrounds. So the results of this part of the VITAL trial, 123 participants in the vitamin D group and 155 in the placebo group had confirmed autoimmune disease. That's a hazard ratio of 0.78. That sounds pretty good. Oh, it sounds impressive, doesn't it? And the headline grabber was that we reduce the risk of autoimmune disease by 22%. Dun, dun, dun. Exactly. But what, when you look at that in absolute numbers, that's 1.1% of the patients versus 0.9%. Number needed to treat 500 to prevent a confirmed autoimmune disease. For five years. Exactly. They have to take, not, not just, yeah, they have a number needed to treat and have to take the medicine for five years to prevent one case. Right, so that would be roughly like 2,500 per year. And so the omega-3 fatty acids were not significant in this area. So the authors concluded that they, you know, more data is needed, but other trials could test these interventions in younger populations and also those with high autoimmune disease risk. So this might be true, I'm interested in what you think, but if there is an effect, it's small. Right, exactly. You know, and, and we often talk about underpowered studies, underpowered studies, underpowered studies, but there's a flip side to that, and that's overpowered studies. Great call. And if you take a big enough population and you get enough people and divide them in half, you will find statistical differences between them. And that's what they did. They found these tiny little statistical differences And then, of course, gave a hazard ratio and then inflated that to be able to say, look, a 22%, you know, risk reduction or what, 22% decrease if you take this for five years will prevent one case. You know, so I I really think that we don't know because I'm not going to say it doesn't work, but this doesn't convince me that it does work. Yeah, and they, they had to lump all the, quote, autoimmune diseases together. And some of them, like, you know, polymyalgia rheumatica, people do pretty okay with most of the time. And so we don't know how serious these are. We don't know if it alters, you know, life expectancy or even quality of life or anything. In their favor, they pre-specified the endpoint, which we talked about. That's encouraging. They did seem to blindly adjudicate the diagnoses, which is encouraging. And so this may just be an outlier like we talked about and because the rest of the vital trial showed mostly no benefit. Bottom line. In patients over age 50, vitamin D may have a small effect on incident autoimmune disease in five years. Paper five. Abstract number five, 
effect of platelet-rich plasma injections versus placebo on ankle symptoms and function in patients with ankle osteoarthritis, a randomized clinical trial published in JAMA 2021. Steve, what's the number needed to publish, the NNP, of negative trials to give up on an area of research? I mean, I could bring the horse back in and opening the door in the barn. <laughs> How many times do you have to beat a dead horse? What would it, what would it take for... I, before people stop studying it, people are going to have to stop doing it. Yeah. Well, so be, which, or making money off. Right. That's the I that's mean, the let's, thing. let's be serious. Yeah, follow the right. money. But we've covered, you know, these plasma-rich uh, or platelet-rich plasma story many times on PCMA. And I, I don't think I can remember a paper showing that it works. So the goal of this randomized control trial was to determine the effects of PRP injections on symptoms and functions in patients with osteoarthritis of the ankle. It was a multi-center, block-randomized, double-blinded, placebo-controlled clinical trial at six sites in the Netherlands. These were adult patients 18 years of age and older, and they had to have osteoarthritis of their ankle and give a pain score of greater than 40 out of 100 on that 100 VAS or visual analog scale and tibial tailor joint space narrowing on imaging. And we know how well imaging correlates to pain. It doesn't. So patients were excluded if they'd had injections of their ankle in the past six months, had a concomitant uh, OA uh, diagnosis of one or more other major joints in the lower extremities that impaired their activities of daily living or went for previous ankle surgery. So they had these other things to exclude those patients. The intervention, two ultrasound-guided injections of platelet-rich plasma into the joint, and the control, they got some saline injections. The primary outcome was the American Orthopedic Foot and Ankle Society score over 26 weeks. This is a validated score that ranges from 0 to 100, with higher scores indicating less pain and better function. The minimal clinical important difference using this validated score is 12 points. So very similar to the pain score, which is somewhere around 13. So they had 100 participants were recruited with a mean age of 56 years and 45% were women. The mean score improved by 10 points in the PRP group and 11 points in the placebo group. <laughs> so the point estimate was better with the placebo and it was not statistically different between the two. Adverse events was 13 in the PRP group and 8 in the placebo group and only one serious event in the placebo group that was unrelated to the intervention. So, Steve, do we have to go through every joint in the body <laughs> before accepting that PRP injections do not provide a patient-oriented outcome of benefit? I mean, the hand-waving of why it doesn't work, I can hear it now. Oh, it was a different PRP preparation. The number of injections given, the site of injection, the severity of the disease, the additional treatments that were not controlled for, like physiotherapy. I mean, as much hand-waving as you want to do, we still don't have evidence that it's superior. So those claiming benefit and charging for PRP injections need to demonstrate with high-quality evidence to support their claim. And so far, they've failed to meet their burden of proof. Well, so if this were a positive study, I would have wondered, did the placebo group have all the 
ceremony of the PRP, right? You have to have a machine that, you know, goes Words bing. And, yep. Yeah. You know, and you come in with the the starch white lab coat. Right. And the gloves are placed. <laughs> right. You know, and uh, yeah, the ceremony and the, uh, yeah, the regalia that takes place or that you're wearing and doing the injections. Because patients, I'm sure, will tell people that this helps them. Oh, be- yes. Because there's lots of ceremony. And, you know, I got an injection and I paid... So I looked this up between $500 and $2,500 per treatment. They're estimating that the market could grow to billions of dollars. Listen, you got to put your finger up. Yeah, (laughs) when we're live, you have to put your finger up. And I was also wondering, how is this approved? How, How are you allowed to do this? And it turns out that the separator device is an approved FDA device for other things. And so there's kind of like a loophole that you can off-label inject the platelets anywhere you want because this device is, like, approved for some things. And so because the doctor is allowed to put this in the ankle legally doesn't mean that there's any proof. And the FDA has not approved PRP for ankle osteoarthritis. So so you're really winging it here. And, and I agree. You need to be able to prove that you're not doing this just to make money. Bottom line. The available evidence does not support the use of platelet-rich plasma injections for adult patients suffering from osteoarthritis of the ankle. Paper six. Abstract number six, if platelet-rich plasma is one of our least favorite topics, I think placebo might be up there among our most favorite topics. Acupuncture? (laughs) Oh, sorry, I said the A word. (laughs) You came all the way down here, and you're still talking about acupuncture. Just just let it scab, Ken. Just let it scab. (laughs) So this is the effect of open-label placebo on children and adolescents with functional abdominal pain or irritable bowel syndrome, a randomized clinical trial. JAMA Pediatrics, January 2022. So we talked a few months ago on PCMA about open-label placebo for post-operative back pain and reducing opioid use. And so I, they call this here honestly prescribed placebos, which I really like that that like description. Honest lying. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Truth in advertising. <laughs> so we don't need to conceal or deceive to try a placebo. And there have been no studies of open-label placebos published in children. And, you, you know, we haven't talked about it much on this show, but there's lots of discussion about pain-predominant disorders of what they call the gut-brain interaction. And they lump together irritable bowel syndrome and what they call functional abdominal pain in this category, this gut-brain interaction. And we know that many randomized controlled trials of these disorders show a very strong placebo response, like the peppermint oil that we talked just about a couple months ago, that about 70% in the placebo group got benefit in their IBS. So maybe an open-label placebo for pediatric functional abdominal pain, or IBS, might be useful. So maybe we can deceive children openly and honestly. (laughs) Exactly. So uh, these authors conducted an RCT, multi-center, randomized crossover trial, two crossover trials in one episode of PCMA. Three U.S. centers, kids 8 to 18, with functional abdominal pain or irritable bowel syndrome as defined by the Rome 3 criteria. They observed the patients for a week. That's called a washout period. Then they randomized them to three weeks of control or three weeks of open-label placebo, and then they crossed them over. 
So all kids got the same treatment, just in a different order. And they explained the placebo in what they call a standard way. They talked about the gut-brain connection, explained that sugar pills without medication has been shown to be effective. And patients could use breakthrough hyoscamine. Have you ever used that? Hyacine? Is that what it? I yeah. I don't. Maybe that's how you pronounce it. Mm-hmm. It has more letters than that. It looks well, like. Yeah. To me. No, I mispronounce things regularly. Okay. <laughs> so have you used that? Yes. Okay. So primary outcome: daily pain score on a zero to hundred scale. The results: many of the patients who they assessed did not qualify for the study. Eighty patients assessed. Thirty-one were randomized. So forty-nine were excluded because they didn't meet the Rome criteria. They had recent medication changes. They'd started CBT. They refused or they didn't take the medications in the washout period. 21 of 30 patients reported higher pain scores during the control period. The difference was only five points on a 100-point scale on average. They had a secondary outcome that patients during the control time used a little bit more of the hyacine medication over a three-week period, only four pills versus two pills. And then 15% of patients reported the placebo improved the pain score by more than 50%. I can't wait to hear your thoughts on this. But one thing is kids won't understand what a placebo is, right? Especially younger kids. Yeah, and I don't understand. Like, it was a small sample, but they did a power calculation, you know, for that. But to find a statistical difference of five points on this 100-point scale. And, and we know that when it comes to pain, we're usually looking for something 13. So why didn't they power their study for finding, you know, greater than 10 difference? I pulled the references, of course, what they, you know, used for their power scale. And they used some statistical modeling from psychology literature to talk about what the delta should be if this is big enough. And that's how they got their number None of those papers were specific to pain scores. They were for psychology studies, and none of them involved children. And so uh, I'm not buying the power calculation to begin with. Short duration, right? And at the end of the day, I think it erodes the confidence that we have as clinicians and physicians. And I think that's something that we really need to be very careful about protecting and not eroding the trust that we need to earn You know, it just isn't granted because you're an MD or a DO. It should be earned and then maintained. And I think that doing these types of things will erode that. Yeah, and even if the parent understands that this is a placebo, the kid might not. So in some ways, you might be misleading the kid, even if you're not misleading the parent. And you're misleading a child, you know, the average age in these children and stuff like that. So when they grow up, what what are they going to think of the healthcare industry and providers and clinicians? And what will that do to their trust? Yeah. Bottom line. Open label placebo needs more study for functional bowel disorders and irritable bowel syndrome in children. Paper seven. Abstract number seven. Effect of fractional carbon dioxide laser versus sham treatment on symptom severity in women with postmenopausal vaginal symptoms, a randomized clinical trial, JAMA 2021. Steve, every time I hear the word laser, and I'm doing air quotes it's on, on amazing. I'm I'm right into the Dr. Evil. To bring <laughs> lasers to us this month in PCMA is genius, Ken. Oh, thank thank you. you. Using these lasers. Well, the objective of this study was to determine the efficacy of fractional carbon dioxide laser 
for treatment of vaginal symptoms associated with menopause. It was a double-blinded, randomized, sham-controlled trial done at a single tertiary referral hospital in Australia. These were women 18 years of age and older were included who had not previously received vaginal energy-based treatment for menopausal symptoms, been amenorrheic for at least 12 months, and had one or more vaginal symptoms. Women were excluded if they had pelvic organ prolapse, usually greater than stage 2, active genital or urinary tract infections, previous vaginal mesh surgery, ongoing chronic medical conditions that may interfere with the study completion. They randomized them one-to-one to receive either three treatments, one month apart, using a laser set at 40 watts, or a sham set at 0.5 watts. Co-primary outcomes, no no response, Steve, (laughs) co-primary outcomes were symptom severity assessed using a visual analog scale and a vulvovaginal symptom questionnaire. They had um, some secondary outcomes as well. 85 patients were included in this study, mean age was 57, and 92% completed the 12-month follow-up. Ready for the results? I am. Should I give a trigger warning? About lasers on Uh, your private parts? There was no statistical difference between applying a laser to the vaginal area compared to the sham group in change of symptom severity. No statistical difference in quality of life scores, no statistical difference in adverse events. So this is a great example where there was some observational data that can show some impressive results. And I think that has to do with the placebo effect. You know, you're bringing out the laser, right? This is, this is an expensive piece of high-end physics equipment, stuff like that. Now, in this, they base their power calculation on studies showing a 90% reduction in symptoms. Wow, that's, that's a huge reduction. The power calculation was more conservative. They set this one at 50%. However, This still resulted in a small sample size of less than 100 women. So I guess it is possible with a larger sample size, a statistical difference could be shown, but whether that would be clinically significant, I don't know. Certainly that would be needed to be demonstrated before I would accept this claim that using a laser can help these women with their postmenopausal symptoms. The studying sham procedures is like pure gold, you know, they have to like have the same visual and auditory effects. So there's the pinging and the whirring and the whatever noise laser makes. And it was the same thing, but they just turned the power way down. And the other factor for me is most of these patients, the gold standard treatment is vaginal estrogen cream. To try some fancy lasers before that doesn't seem right to me. And I agree, very unlikely that this is helpful. Bottom line. Lasers cannot be recommended at this time to treat postmenopausal women with vaginal symptoms. Paper 8. Abstract number 8. Drug treatment for panic disorder with or without agoraphobia. Systematic review and meta-analysis of randomized control trials in BMJ, January 2022. So panic disorder, you all know, is recurrent and unexpected panic attacks associated with depression and anxiety, and this leads to impairment in social work and family functioning. And agoraphobia is fear or anxiety provoked by real or anticipated exposure to a range of situations, especially going out in public. Guidelines recommend SSRIs as the primary treatment as they're more safe in the long term than benzodiazepines and tricyclic antidepressants. So the goal of this study was to assess the optimal medication for panic disorder in adults. 
They designed a study where they did a systematic review and meta-analysis and a network meta-analysis using multiple data sources. They used Embase, Medline, clinicaltrials.gov. The criteria were RCTs that measured outcomes including remission, dropouts, and adverse events. They assessed the risk of bias and performed a network meta-analysis, like I said. They found 87 studies, almost 13,000 participants, 12 different drug classes were studied. 86 of the 87 studies had some concern or were at high risk of bias. All medication options were superior to placebo for remission, with risk ratios about around 1.3 to 1.4. But when they used a fancy ranking system, the benzodiazepines, the tricyclic antidepressants, and the SSRIs, were the top treatments. But benzos and tricyclic antidepressants had the highest risks of adverse effects. And then they felt that sertraline and escitalopram emerged from this data as providing high remission with an acceptable risk of adverse events. And I was trying, you know, it's really hard when you get risk ratios to sort of understand, like, what does that mean to a patient? So I was able to find on the nnt.com that the number needed to treat is four for benzodiazepines for remission of panic disorder. And so I assume it would be pretty similar for the SSRIs, but the benzos have a one in 41 adverse effect in panic disorder. So, you know, these studies were small on average, less than 150 patients each, and overall have a high risk of bias. They don't mention how many were funded by industry. These recommendations, however, do agree with the recommendations from multiple guidelines. And the authors, you know, attempted to do this systematic review and network meta-analysis, and they did do a really good job following the PRISMA guidelines. The methodology was really good, but I think this is a great example of you're stuck with the data that's out there, right? And if you've got 86 out of 87 studies that there is some concern or we're at high risk of bias, most of the studies were more than 20 years old with poor methodology. Their primary outcome was readmission. Well, they didn't have 87 studies on readmission. They had 50 studies on readmission. And we see that happening with systematic reviews where the headline is, this is how many hundreds of studies. But when you look at their primary outcome, we had four. You know, four studies that actually spoke to that primary outcome. So we need to be careful. And I'm getting into the garbage in, garbage out. And I'm not calling these authors, of course, that they're doing that. It's just they're at the mercy of the studies that have been published that they can actually review and analyze. Most of the studies were short-term, less than three months. And so, you know, I wonder, these medications, how long will they be taking them? And that, of course, becomes an issue with the benzodiazepines. The findings suggesting that SSRIs provide higher rates of admission with low risk of adverse events Okay, but that's pretty weak and shaky evidence that they're basing this on. So as much as I wanted this to give me more answers, it didn't. Bottom line. SSRIs, especially sertraline and escitalopram, are reasonable options for panic disorder. Paper 9. Abstract number 9. This is metformin for gestational diabetes study. Metformin versus insulin in gestational diabetes, glycemic control, and obstetrical and perinatal outcomes, a randomized prospective trial in AJOG 2021. Now, the American Diabetes Association recommends insulin as the first-line treatment for gestational diabetes. And limited long-term data on metformin, which does cross the placenta. 
So the objective of this trial was to see if in women with gestational diabetes, not controlled with lifestyle changes. So that's a good point. We, we should try lifestyle yep. first, right? Yep. We're not just pill pushers here, right? If metformin could achieve the same glycemic control as insulin with similar obstetrical and perinatal results and a good safety profile. So it was a multi-center, open label, parallel arms, randomized, non-inferiority clinical trial performed at two hospitals in Spain. They included women 18 to 45 years of age and a gestational age somewhere between 14 and 35 weeks. Now, women were excluded if there was some language barrier. They had a fasting glycemia of greater than 120 and chronic gastrointestinal disease. Now, the intervention was metformin started at, uh, what, 425 to 850 milligrams. I mean, we get dosages of 250 and 500, right? Is that what you're at? Uh, we get, we get, get five, yeah, 500 and 850. Yeah, yeah. So I'm always thinking 500s, yeah, right? right. And so this was at breakfast, dinner, or both, and increased if needed. And if glycemic control was not achieved, then insulin was added. Now, the insulin group received Levamir at bedtime and or Novid Rapid one to three times per day with meals. The primary outcome was a lab-oriented outcome, right? A loo. So this was glycemic control, hypoglycemic episodes. Okay, that would be more patient-oriented. Obstetrical outcomes, more patient-oriented. Perinatal outcomes and complications. The power calculation used a non-inferiority margin of 25% for macrosomia variable. That, that's the variable of interest. So they got 200 women who are randomized with a mean age of 35 years. Their body mass index before pregnancy was 30. 25% were null gravid. The fasting glucose was 98. And in the metformin group, 70 in the metformin only and 20 in the combo group and then four in the insulin only. Does that make sense, Steve? Yeah. I, so it wasn't, you remember those women that were in the metformin only group could also get insulin. And some of those women even actually just got off the metformin and went straight to insulin. However, there was no statistical difference in fasting and postprandial glycemia between the groups. Hypoglycemia, though, was more common in the insulin group compared to the metformin group, and women treated with metformin gained less weight. Labor induction was less with metformin, and cesarean deliveries were also less with metformin. And then when they looked at mean birth weight, macrosomia, large for gestational age, babies, complications, none of those were statistically different between the groups. So, there were so many issues with this publication. I mean, the primary outcomes, multiple ones were lab-oriented. I wish they had asked the women, what do you think is the most important outcome? And go with that. Yeah. You know, like, I'm seeing this more with guidelines where they bring in patients to say, what do you think we should be looking at as the primary outcome? Before this study, I wish they had gone to a group of women and said, listen, what do you care the most about? And then we'll power the study for that. That's a great call. You know, um, many women still ended up on insulin. The cost of metformin would be much less than insulin, and they didn't consider that in the study. These results, though, do align with multiple other studies looking at the same issue and finding similar results regarding the much larger trial, the MIG, and the American Diabetes Association and ACOG still prefer insulin, while the SMFM think metformin is a reasonable first-line agent. So the sands are shifting on this one. Yeah, to me, the most impressive thing is hypoglycemic episodes number needed to harm three mm -hmm. with insulin. 
I could see why people that take care of pregnant patients might need a higher threshold than other things to change the practice. But then it's kind of like, why did we get stuck in the metformin and the insulin practice in the first place? Because most of the guidelines say that if the patient doesn't want to take insulin, metformin is probably your next line option. And gliburide might also be reasonable, but probably metformin before gliburide. But somehow it feels like the burden of proof here is higher because we keep trying this again and again and again. It seems to me like metformin is at least as good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that you've got to take into account the women's wishes on this. And, you know, and going on insulin is one thing. Taking metformin is another thing. Looking at costs, looking at hypoglycemic events and things like that. I know that there were some theoretical risks and metformin causing placenta and no long-term data on that, but that's hypothetical, right? They haven't demonstrated that. So I think that uh, my position is aligning more with, yeah, I think we probably could consider metformin as a reasonable first-line agent. I agree. Bottom line. Evidence continues to accumulate that metformin is a reasonable option for treating gestational diabetes mellitus. Paper 10. Abstract number 10, sadly, the last abstract of our almost live recording in Phoenix. (laughs) This is from JAMA Pediatrics, January 2022. The non-inferiority and safety of natalol versus propranolol in infants with infantile hemangioma. So most of you have had patients with these. These are blood vessel clusters that grow quite quickly in the early phase of a baby's life. By about three months of age, most of these hemangiomas will be about 80% of their maximum size. So that's really scary for a new parent to watch these things grow in the first three months. They've usually shrunk by the first birthday, but some of them leave a permanent scar. And then there are obviously worrisome lesions in disfiguring areas, especially in the face or lesions that impinge on important structures. And so when I saw this in 2011, my mind was sort of blown that propranolol, since 2011, a randomized controlled trial has been shown to decrease the size and thickness of these lesions compared to placebo. And a 2015 meta-analysis showed that propranolol is superior to steroids, lasers, and surgery. So these authors think that maybe natalol might make it safer including the fact that it doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier and has no sympathomimetic activity. So they wanted to show the non-inferiority and safety of oral natalol compared with oral propranolol in kids with infantile hemangioma. So this is a double-blind study with a non-inferiority margin of 10% comparing propranolol with natalol in infants between the ages of one and six months with problematic infantile hemangioma. It's Canadian study, two academic centers. The inclusion criteria were infants aged one to six months with a hemangioma greater than 1.5 centimeters on the face or three centimeters or greater on another body part causing or with the potential to cause functional impairment or cosmetic disfigurement. The interventions were oral propranolol or natalol up to two milligrams per kilogram per day. The main outcomes were between group differences comparing changes in the bulk, both the size and the extent and the color of the hemangioma at week 24 using a 100 millimeter visual analog scale. So what are the results? 
71 patients, mean age three months. Most of them were female, which is consistent with who has infantile hemangiomas most commonly. 35 babies were treated with natalol, and the natalol outcomes were favored for both size and color improvement by 12 weeks. In both groups, the lesion shrunk by 75% in 80% of the patients by 12 to 16 weeks. Non-inferiority was shown. Natalol may actually lead to faster change in the lesion and the adverse events are mild. So we need a superiority trial to show that natalol is better than propranolol. But to me, this is enough data that this would probably be my medication of choice. I couldn't find this on GoodRx. I'm not sure the natalol liquid is available. The pill's inexpensive and, and similar to the propranolol liquid. So I think I had a similar arc in this topic as you did, Steve, because it's like, really? Propranolol? It's amazing. It, you know, it works so well. And so I pulled the original New England Journal of Medicine article from 2015 that showed 88% of patients who received propranolol had improvement by five weeks compared to 5%. I mean, that's a number needed to treat of less than one. Yeah, right. <laughs> right? It's amazing. So like, you know, pretty impressive. I'm not a huge fan of non-inferiority studies, but in this case, if we can give a medication that has less potential for adverse events, I think that's one area that we could apply a non-inferiority study design because usually we're seeing non-inferiority study designs for, well, it's not any worse, but it has these convenience factors and it's much more expensive, right? Right. right. Whereas I'm not seeing that here. This is inexpensive and it's decreasing adverse events. And so I agree with you. I would be more likely to grab the natalol than the propranolol for these. Bottom line. Natalol is non-inferior to propranolol, the current treatment of choice for infantile hemangioma. that's the 10 papers. Now it's your turn, audience, to give us some feedback and tell us if you think that Steve and I getting together in the same room is not inferior <laughs> to actually recording in different countries. Now, again, it may or may not rely upon maple whiskey to whether or not you think that this is the appropriate way to do it, but we do love hearing your feedback. We did get some feedback recently about, you know, a paper from Mel to include. We got some feedback from another reader about race. That was in the United States Preventative Service Task Force mm -hmm. uh, yeah. paper and stuff like yeah. that. So yeah, we do like getting your feedback. So hey, what do you think of Steve and I hanging out together? Yeah, and hopefully we won't have to go another three years to exchange bottles of alcohol and record in person. So what, you know, what would you uh, bring if you were coming up to the Canada? I was thinking of that, sort of a Phoenix beverage. They have great, some great local breweries here, but okay. I think in sticking with kind of the harder liquor, I would probably have to go with a good tequila. Tequila? Okay, yeah, so, so. so when Steve comes, we have this recorded now, when Steve comes to Canada, yeah. he's going to bring a good bottle of tequila. Fabulous. Well, until that happens, hopefully everybody is uh, staying safe out there and talk to you next time. See you next time. I think I can sum this all up. And we're back. Here's the summary. And starting off as usual is PCMA. And I'm up first with paper number one. PCMA, article one. 
regular acetaminophen use and blood pressure in people with hypertension, the PATH-BP trial in circulation February 2022. This study aimed to determine if the use of acetaminophen had an impact on blood pressure. There was indeed a small increase of 5 millimeters of mercury in systolic blood pressure, but this was a small sample size. The study was only two weeks in length, and there were no patient-oriented outcomes included, and the patients did not have chronic pain. So perhaps not the people that were worried about using chronic acetaminophen. So overall, this doesn't really leave us much further ahead, except for a small signal of a small bump in the BP. Paper 2, Prediction of End-Stage Kidney Disease Using Estimated Glomerular Filtration Rate with and without race. A prospective cohort study in the Annals of Internal Medicine in January 2022. Now, several of our EGFR calculators use race as one of the variables. And this study asked, is this really beneficial and is it necessary to include race in these equations? And the answer is no. So let's stop using tools that potentially encourage racializing our patients. Paper 3. Postdiagnosis Smoking Cessation and Reduced Risk for Lung Cancer Progression and Mortality. A Prospective Cohort Study in the Annals of Internal Medicine, September 2021. This was a Russian study looking at whether or not quitting smoking after being diagnosed with non-small cell lung cancer had an impact on patient mortality. There were some methodological issues here, but the results were still compelling. Patients had an average survival of 22 months longer if they quit smoking after their diagnosis. 22 months and an NNT of 8 for 5-year survivability with non-small cell lung cancer. Those are pretty impressive in my mind. Agreed. I was blown away by this, Vanessa. Like This is important information to share with our patients. Definitely. Paper 4, Vitamin D and Marine Omega-3 Fatty Acid Supplementation in Incident Autoimmune Disease. Vital randomized control trial in BMJ in January 2022. And this is a paper request from the one, the only Mel Herbert. And I know that Mel, like all of us, has been hoping that vitamin D would be good for something, and that I guess in this case, specifically that vitamin D and omega 3 fatty acid supplementation would help prevent autoimmune disease. But it didn't, at least not in this study that occurred over a five year period. At least we should say it didn't impressively change it. There was a 0.2% difference between the treatment group and the placebo group, giving it a number needed to treat of 500. So unfortunately, our consensus is that this should not change our practices. Sorry, Mel. Paper 5, Effective Platelet-Rich Plasma Injections versus Placebo on Ankle Symptoms and Function in Patients, in JAMA October 2021. Well, Heidi, you know me, and you know that I love a good rant. And I love hearing Ken's tense tone where he is basically seething about platelet-rich plasma (laughs) injections. And he has good reason to. This Dutch study of 100 people at six sites compared platelet-rich plasma injections to placebo saline injections for ankle osteoarthritis. It turns out that placebo actually helped more than the platelet-rich plasma and had fewer negative side effects. So platelet-rich plasma has yet to be proven effective in high-quality studies. Paper 6. The Effect of Open-Label Placebo on Children and Adolescents with Functional Abdominal Pain or Irritable Bowel Syndrome, a randomized controlled trial. The authors of these study conducted an RCT, a randomized control, multi-center, randomized crossover trial at three U.S. centers, which featured children between the ages of 8 and 18 who had functional abdominal pain, or IBS, as defined by the Rome 3 criteria. 
Patients had one week of observation, then were randomized to three weeks control or an open label, and then had a crossover period. So basically, all the kids got the same treatment in the end. And 21 of the 30 patients had higher pain scores during the control period. I think the total was the difference of five points on a 100-point scale, which really, if you look at these scales, is not that impressive. So the lackluster results plus the challenge of adequately explaining placebos to kids means that this unfortunately is not ready for prime time. Paper 7. So this was the carbon dioxide laser versus sham treatment on symptom severity in women with postmenopausal vaginal symptoms, a randomized clinical trial published in JAMA October 2021. This Australian study looked at whether the use of laser therapy would help postmenopausal women with bothersome vaginal symptoms. They compared laser to sham therapy and found no difference between symptoms, quality of life scores, or adverse effects. So keep the lasers away from your bits, ladies. Paper 8, Drug Treatment for Panic Disorder with or Without Agoraphobia, Systematic Review and Network Meta-Analysis of Randomized Controlled Trials in the one, the only, BMJ. Panic disorder, whether or not it comes with the side of agoraphobia, is absolutely crippling. So we want to make sure we treat this condition well. SSRIs, especially sertraline and escitalopram, are top choices with benzos and TCA showing improvement as well. So a few options to consider when we want to help our patients with this. Paper 9. Metformin for gestational diabetes study. Metformin versus insulin in gestational diabetes. Glycemic control and obstetrical and perinatal outcomes. Randomized prospective trial. Which is a terrible title. In the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, November 2021. This was a Spanish study of 200 women with gestational diabetes comparing insulin to metformin as a first-line pharmaceutical therapy. Unfortunately, the study had numerous primary outcomes which were somewhat lab-oriented, but it did show that there was no difference between insulin and metformin based on those metrics. So, depending on patient preference, it seems that metformin is just as good as insulin in these patients when it comes to glycemic control. There will be more on this to come, I am sure. Paper 10 in the American Academy of Pediatrics. This is non-inferiority and safety of natalol versus propranolol in infants with infantile hemangioma, a randomized clinical trial. So we all know that propranolol is the secret sauce for treating infantile hemangiomas. And the question has arisen, is this effect limited to this particular medications or are all other beta blockers potentially useful? So this study looked at natalol, which some people do use already, and did actually find that it was non-inferior to propranolol, which I guess is a good start to have a study showing non-inferiority. But since we already have an effective treatment, we're looking for better, not just as good as. So I hope they do a head-to-head superiority trial. My money's on propranolol. Me too. It's Reviews and Perspectives with Dr. Hobart Lee. Reviews and Perspectives with Hobart Lee. Hobie and I tackled vitamin D this month. We looked at the literature to see if there was any indication to endorse regular screening for vitamin D deficiency, and also if there's any indication to supplement these deficient patients with vitamin D. And what did we find? Well, we found that, no, there's no evidence that screening for vitamin D deficiency or supplementing vitamin D deficiency makes any difference on hard patient-relevant outcomes. The only thing it succeeds in doing is getting vitamin D levels back to the normal range. Okay? And with that, I hope we can put a nail in the coffin that is vitamin D. So I'm going to do that right now. 
As of June 2022, there's no evidence that screening for vitamin D makes that difference. The Generalist. Moving on to The Generalist now, Adrian Slim and Jake Anderson join us and tease out the complicated relationship between rapid atrial fibrillation and heart failure. We see this all too often in the hospital. Is it the uncontrolled rate that's causing the heart failure, or is it vice versa, or is it both? Thankfully, they walk us through a straightforward approach of how to help our unstable patients. Male Athlete Triad In our office medicine segment, Dusty Narducci joins me to talk about the Male Athlete Triad. This is comprised of low energy availability, disruption of the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal pathway, and also altered bone health. Dusty walks us through the evaluation and management of our patients with this triad, and I'd encourage you to check out her show notes as well, as it's very clearly laid out what we need to do to help out these patients. Rural Medicine Talks. And on Rural Med this month, well, this was a palliative care emergency. This was a tough case that I had a few years ago of a patient with lung cancer who developed terminal bleeding. I go over some of the issues to think about in advance with patients who are at risk for terminal or malignant hemorrhage, from mentally prepping the patient and family to getting dark bedsheets and towels around the patient. And then I also go over some of the therapies used to aggressively sedate these patients so that they are unaware of the process of hemorrhaging to death. It is such a sad case, but it highlighted some useful tips and tricks for palliative care in the emergency room. Bell's Palsy On the new urgent care segment, Gita Pensa and Mel talk about Bell's Palsy. Please listen to the case because it's an excellent review, but I was left with one pressing question at the end. Is it Bell's or is it Bell Palsy? Please let us know what you're saying in your shop. All right, so don't forget, of course, once you finish listening to Write on Prime, you can check out some of the other offerings in the MRAP universe. If you like the video format, you're going to love The Daily Dose because these are daily, super short snapper videos on really useful clinical topics. And if you like longer form videos, then check out the HD section as well. And of course, there's Corpendium, which is the online textbook, the MRAP show proper, and emergency medical abstracts. So much to offer all in your subscription. Well, on that note, Vanessa, I think it's time for us to take our leave. It's been a treat seeing you, and I look forward to seeing you back again next month. That's right, Heidi. So until July 2022, keep doing what you do. Because what you do matters. Matters.